Welcome, I am your host Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. Joining me as always, we got my guy Cody Safdick, you guys can find him at CJ Safdick on Twitter, and we are here propping you up for UFC 262, headlined by a vacant lightweight strap uh, title fight between Charles Oliveira and Michael Chandler, very, very fun matchup, not to mention a fire matchup in the Coleman event between Tony Ferguson and Benio Dariush, cannot wait to break this down with my guy Cody not to mention we got red corner and blue corner thing going on right here so I'm assuming that we got some differing opinions and we'll see how that goes with the with the breakdowns Cody how excited are you for this pay-per-review not to mention we did lose uh, Nate Diaz versus Leon Edwards personally I wasn't the super most stoked about that fight but it is less firepower and less star power for this weekend overall how do you feel about this card yeah, to be honest, I didn't really care too much for that fight, but you got two big-name opponents, so it was going to be good. You're, it's a pay-per-view. You're trying to get people to buy the pay-per-view. You want them to spend their money. You need big matchups. But as far as an entertainment standpoint, I think this card is absolutely loaded top to bottom. As far as a card that you feel good from a betting standpoint, I like this card as well. So I think there's a lot you can get excited about. As far as, oh, it's a it's a title fight, but it's a vacant title, and no one's the real champ habib's the real champ right these guys are yeah. playing second fiddle but again this is the violence award this card is ram jam packed with potential fight of the night winners from the prelims all the way to the main event so uh super excited to be getting at it last thing i'll say before we actually jump into this you missing your boy paul yet or are you guys getting familiar over the skype and zoom stuff yeah it's always gonna be different man i mean it's different seeing one of your best friends that you've seen the last 10 years but uh yeah it's cool that the ufc has an event every week so it's one of those things where you don't have to be like oh man i haven't talked to paul in a couple of weeks i'll shoot him a text it's like you know you're gonna just talk to him uh, all the time so i feel bad because book of beatdown got blown up but the one advantage on the prop side of things is last week this happens i don't know if you've noticed this but every time we do the show one of the plays for the most part gets uh falls oh, off sure. so lins and rothwell finds off i always end up with like two of the plays and then thankfully uh, we got two hits magni and jeff neal goes the distance and then as well of uh, harris by submission hitting at plus 165 apparently like ballooned to 250 a lot of people were messaging me that it had gone that way and got they got an even better price tag so again this is another tag where this is another card where You'll, you'll see there's not a whole lot of underdogs on this card. There's a ton of 50-50 fights. There's a ton of even money plays. There's a ton of these minus 110, minus 120s. But I see a lot of plus money on the prop side of things. So excited. Unfortunately for Paul and I, you're dealing with 50-50 uh, fights and big favorites. But I, I do miss the guy, <laughs> as, as I always will. For sure. No, I, de I definitely got to get the guy on my Friday show at one point, too, because I love chopping it up with them, too, even in the DMs. Uh, in regards to you saying that there's a lot of close fights on this card, you're, you're not wrong, man. There's, I believe the last time I counted, there's about eight fighters that were minus 150 or better. Just lets you know how closely line these fights are. And I am completely puzzled with this card. I'm hoping you can give me some uh, clarity in regards to it. But I do have some certain spots that I feel more comfortable with than other spots. But we'll see how we can discuss the rest of the card. All right. Before we get into it, as I always want to remind you guys, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, support the channel as always. Uh, me and Cody love doing this show on a week-to-week -week basis for you guys, and that is obviously the best way that you guys can show your support. So let's not waste any further time. Let's get into the first fight on the card. We got Christos Iagos going up against uh, the returning Sean Soriano. Now, Christos Iagos was originally scheduled to fight Joel Alvarez. Alvarez pulls out in step Soriano on somewhat short notice. The last time Soriano was in the UFC, he had a very tough stretch. 0-3 in the UFC, takes two of those fights on short notice, so that doesn't really help him out. Not to mention, stylistically speaking, very horrible matchups for him, concerning he had Tatsuya Kawajiri, Chas Skelly, and Charles Rosa to go up with, and a lot of those guys were able to exploit his grappling deficiencies. 
he's I'm not sure how much he's been able to work on it in that amount of time since leaving the UFC the first time but obviously he's working a lot with Gilbert Burns down there at uh, Sanford MMA trying to really round out his game he's he seems to be one of the coaching staff guys now too right holding pads for the guys cornering guys so he's really investing himself in that team which is great to see but in terms of a mixed martial arts uh, fighter, I still don't know how much he brings to the table. The guy has good hands. The guy has good boxing. But I still think that he's going to have deficiencies when it comes to the grappling realm. And I do think that we'll see Yagos exploit those in the first two rounds. The tricky part here is Yagos' gas tank seems to fall off a cliff after that second round. And that's where things get a little bit shaky. Um, and I'm a little bit concerned as to, you know, picking the minus 200, minus 210 favorite here in Yagos, especially with the, uh, the cardio issues that he has later in fights. Ultimately, I do think he grinds it out. I think Yagos ends up getting a decision victory here. Uh, the line on that plus 115, not too shabby. If you want to get cheeky with it, you know I like getting cheeky with it. Soriano to win in round three is plus 1,900. But I will say this. Uh, the last fight that Soriano did lose was to Bruce Boynton, where he came in as a minus 520 favorite, ends up pretty much gassing out after that first round and then giving up his back in the second round and getting choked out. If there is still another high-level pace fight this time around with Christos Yagos, with him struggling to get back to his feet, with him using all of his energy just to defend, we could potentially see Soriano have a gas tank dump, right? So I'm not ruling that out either, but Yagos's gas tank issues are way more clear than Soriano's gas tank issues, which is why I'm a little bit concerned about it. In terms of prop though i'm going with the overs i'd be surprised if we see an early finish here i'm gonna go with yagos by decision plus 115 like i'm saying and the over minus two and a half or sorry minus or over two and a half is minus 210 a little bit chalky i'd rather take a decision prop on yagos who do you got in this one you think soriano finishes him late yeah, style, if Styles make fights, then I got to go with Christos Giagos. His power wrestling style is just big, physical, able to, uh, you know, command a lot of just that, that activity, right? That work rate. Does he gas himself out? Yes. But he's one of these guys that just completely exhausts himself on the swim there that he leaves nothing for the swim back. A lot of these fights do go to the distance, but man, in the second round, he just absolutely seems shaky. That last fight with Carlton Minus, it should have been an absolute walk in the park for him. He yeah. dominates the first round, 10-8, very easy comes close to submitting him a couple times but just pure domination but in the second round right away in the second round you just see from the body language you start seeing the takedowns are desperation takedowns in the third round he's completely tired but the takedowns are just so easy against Carlton Minus they come so easy all the time they're effortless that he doesn't really have to dig deep and Minus meanwhile he you know he's completely gassed himself a fighter that was coming out of the Alaska regional scene probably wasn't prepared for a 15-minute grind fest and, and, and grappling match and that's what Giagos brought to the table but that's kind of what Giagos brings to the table every time out i mean we know what we're going to get out of him but you don't have to question about questionable ring iq like he plays to his strengths when he first came to the ufc he was a guy that was getting grappled but as time's gone on they've given him these really low to middle level of level opponents and he's able to kind of go out there and exploit them with sean soriano sean soriano we've seen him in the, in the ufc already oh and three as you mentioned but when he first cracked into the scene he was a highly touted prospect oh, yeah. undefeated nine and oh trained with henry hoof and the black zillions like you talk about gilbert burns been the guy's jiu-jitsu coach for a long time they got rumble johnson in the gym they got uh, Jorge Santiago in the gym. They got Jay Zia's Calvacante. They got Michael Johnson. They got all these great guys in the gym at the time. And he, he comes in his UFC debut. He takes on Tatsu Kawajiri, a absolute legend of the sport, right? Especially for Japanese MMA. And he's an even money play against Kawajiri in his debut. That's how much faith not only did the UFC have in him giving them a fight, but odds makers and fans alike. But it's just like, dude, same shit. He just gives up his back. And when he gives, gives up his back, he gets submitted. Uh, he's a world kickboxing champion, right? He's a guy that, that they've said for a long time in the gym, he's one of the better 
kickboxers in the gym. He's one of the better strikers in the gym. But very similar to Guto Inasench, who's also out of the Black Zillions. One fantastic striker. Everyone raves about his striking in the gym. Only guy in the gym that's out there uh, sparring Tyrone Spong on a regular basis, right? But as far as MMA goes, like te terrible. Not able to make that transition. And Henry Hoof, as a great of a coach as he is, is he, is he the guy that's going to give you these grappling skills? No, he turns great grapplers into great strikers. I just don't know that it's like roles reversed here. So Soriano, we already seen him in the UFC. 0-3, that was his problem. And all the time that's elapsed since then, it's still been his problem. Like you mentioned the Bruce Boynton fight. Boynton's 15-11. He's the quintessential journeyman of the region. And it's just the same shit, man. He comes in as a big favorite. He gets taken down. He gets submitted. He's on a three-fight winning streak. But against Noah Lahad, uh, again, UFC veteran, former AKA jiu-jitsu coach, just like doesn't have a wrestling game and cannot take a punch. The other fights, it's like they match him up against a striker, He'll be able to deliver some magic. He'll be able to maybe have a highlight reel. But these wrestlers and grapplers, they have them time and time again. So Giagos' style is enough to warrant that he'll probably get the job done. What I'm looking at, though, is that when you mentioned Sean Soriano third round, because Giagos has a bad gas tank, I'm almost thinking it might be, like, re reversed, really. So Sean Soriano is the one taking the fun on short notice, not Giagos. Giagos against Carlton Minus. Do you remember this? Carlton Minus is going to fight Riglet. And then, like, two days before the fight... Christos Giago stepped in. So it was understandable to me that at that kind of pace that he tired after two, mind you, he always gasses when he has full camps. doesn't really seem to matter. But I'll give him a pass on the last one where Soriano's been gassing in, in full camps. So now that he's the one coming in a short notice versus a full camp, Christos Giago's, I think the takedowns are there. I think they work. I think he's able to take him down. I think he's able to grind him into some deeper waters. I don't love this play. I don't love this fight on a prop standpoint. But like you said, getting dicey, shaking it up a little bit, maybe a third round Soriano play. I just looked at that submission prop for Christos Giago's at plus 575. Now, bear with me on this one. Giagos actually has not submitted an opponent in the last six years. However, he has submitted an opponent in the UFC, Yohil D'Oliveira, back in the day. But still, you look at his list of opponents, right? I mean, not exactly guys that submissions are going to present themselves against. Against Minus, he was pursuing the takedowns. But then he started getting tired and he abandoned the game plan altogether. It's not so much Giagos' submission game that I'm banking on. It's Soriano's inability to stop the submissions, right? Once he gets taken down, he scrambles and he gives up his back. Once he gives up his back, guys usually put in the hooks, and he doesn't particularly hand fight all that well, which leads to him getting a rear naked choke. Giagos, matter of fact, last submission on his record, again, six years ago, in the UFC against Oliveira, and it is a rear naked choke. You saw him threaten the arm triangle choke against Carlton Minus. You see that there is a submission game there. It's whether or not he's going to go with it. And at plus 575, I'm willing to give it a, a chance. So, yeah, I, I wanted the over. It is juiced. You can't bet that, right? I wanted potentially fight goes the distance, but then I think both guys got a suspect gas tank. If Giagos is tired and can't take him down in the third, he'd get knocked out. If Soriano's tired and he can't stop these takedowns, he could get submitted. So I don't really love the, the, the value on the decision Rob passed on that. Uh, Giagos is the money line play, but what do you take him by decision? Like you mentioned, that's probably the smart side of things. But in my gut, I think, you know, subs on the table. So maybe you go Giagos by decision and a small stab at by submission. Um, but besides that, yeah, not super confident on like a good value prop for this fight. Yeah, that, again, this is only the first fight on the card, and we're still a little bit skeptical in terms of, like, which prop we should be going with, and that should tell you how the, the rest of the stream should probably go. But, yeah, I'm absolutely there with you. I could see that submission. I, I do like that angle, especially considering the odds that they're currently at. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Kevin Aguilar going up against Tucker Lutz, and I, I like me some Lutz in this spot. I'm understanding why he is starting to stretch out as the the slightly bigger favor, only minus 120. The, the line was closer to a pick earlier in the week, but I think he brings a little bit more to the table 
table in terms of you know a little bit more diversity with the strike, slightly better movement compared to Kevin Aguilar. I was surprised the guy was 17 and one coming into the UFC, given the way that he fights. It's just like walk down center line, try to get knock your head off. A lot of boxing oriented, not much kicking, uh, not much grappling. It only seems like he gets engaged in the grappling when his opponent wants to initiate the grappling sequences, and he's just happy to just walk you down and try to knock your head off. He has some good takedown defense. Don't get me wrong, the way he was able to stuff the takedowns of Enrique Barzola and absolutely torch him on the feet was very impressive. But we've seen people kind of figure him out at this point. Say what you want about the Charles Rosa fight. I thought Charles Rosa definitely did deserve to win that fight. Um, but that just goes to show when people have more on the table to 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 offer, uh, I think uh, Kevin Aguilar runs into some trouble. I'm not going to say he's chinny because he got knocked out by Zubera Tuhugov, so I'm not sure if Tucker Letts will actually be able to find that chin, but I do like Tucker Letts here to actually go out there and put together a solid game plan over 15 minutes. Be the more active guy in the striking, throw more different strikes, be more versatile with your approach. If you want to, change levels every now and then. Try to get that high school wrestling back out of your pocket and see if you can get uh, Kevin Aguilar to the ground. I highly doubt that's going to be super successful, but at least that keeps Kevin Aguilar thinking, keeps him on his toes, and allows Tucker Lutz to really open up. Um, I am on the Lutz side. You know I'm a little bit skeptical about backing guys that are coming right off the contender series, but I think that this is a perfectly styled matchup for both guys to show off good things, but I think ultimately it's going to be Lutz that ends up coming on the winning side. I was kind of surprised to see the Lutz uh, decision line at plus 190. Uh, but then again, he, he does get finishes, right? He is a finisher. I do believe Aguilar is quite durable. Uh, so I do think the, the decision props actually going to hit here. So one of my favorite prop spots on this card, again, very low confidence on a lot of these spots, but I do think Lutz by decision plus 190 is not too bad. I see it racking up minutes. I see it racking up rounds. I see it mainly being a striking matchup, but both guys are quite durable. And the last thing I'll say about Tucker Lutz, Slight cardio issues. We can be honest about that, right? Like in his contender series fights, you see him kind of slowing down later in the fights, not really having the output that he had earlier in the fight. Um, but I don't know if Aguilar is truly going to make him work as much as Sherrard Blackledge did or, or the other guy, Chase Gibson, that he fought on the contender series. So that's my that's why I feel a little bit more comfortable with Lutz here. So I'll go Lutz plus 190 on the decision prop. Talk me down. Is Kevin Aguilar actually live here or am I too high on Lutz? Yeah, I honestly think he is live here. Uh, I took the coward's way and just took fight goes the distance, minus 195. Not not a very great price tag now, is it? But I kind of see where your angle is. I think that a lot of people give Aguilar shit because he got knocked out twice, but it's like, you know, high-level competition, man. Zuberto Hugov, not really known for his knockout power, but still, I mean, he's an elite-level competitor. When you look at Dan Ige, he's got some of the fastest hands in the division. Uh, again, you're going to give him a couple passes on those fights. Outside of that, he was known for getting in wars. He was known for putting his chin on full display. He was known for kind of brawling a little too much in the pocket with guys, and, you know, especially in, like, his LFA days, like, uh, back in the regional scene before he came to the UFC, he would just, you know, he was in these very entertaining fight-of-the-night-worthy scraps. Did that take a little too much out of him like is he having chin issues the fact that Charles Rosa just outstruck him just by you know being the quicker guy off his back foot you know uh, better volume a lot faster than it beat him to the punch routinely and a lot of those punches stung him and hurt him didn't drop him didn't knock him down like Zubair Tuhugov and Dan Ige did but still still it's like now we've seen the limitations of where Kevin Aguilar is at. But with Tucker Lutz, like, I, I think that his, he's got limitations as well. He's only 26 years old. Figures that he'll probably continue to get better. I think he's still training out of Maryland. I don't know how far his current situation is going to take him. But here's my issue with him. So 
he fights, he's like an 8-0 undefeated amateur, right? Absolutely stud as an amateur, and then gets knocked out in his debut, his pro professional debut. So when we talk about Aguilar having chin issues, Tucker Lutz may also have chin issues, because after he gets knocked out in his debut, he fights a 1-1, 3-4, and 3-0, not bad there, I guess, 6-7, and 12-5, 3-14, 8-11, 6-3, 2-2, and two, then he gets a contender series. Now, he comes on contender series, and your boy, all over him. He's a minus 370 favorite over Chase Gibson, but hey, I'm going to parlay him up. Uh, he's undefeated, or he's undefeated amateur, once beaten as a pro, long winning streak, looks the part, like you mentioned, high school wrestling background, uh, striking's improved a lot. Perfect. I'm all over on Chase Gibson, and man, he struggles mightily over Chase Gibson. Wins the first round, again, looks really good in the first round, but as he starts to slow in the second, he becomes very hittable. This is not a guy that moves his head particularly off the center line, and I think that's what maybe gives him chin issues. He's hittable. So like you saw in his pro debut, he does get knocked out, but then he fights an entire run of guys that just aren't going to be there to, to, to deliver the blow. So when he gets Chase Gibson, he's he's up the first two rounds. I don't feel great about it. I know I won the first. The second, I'm pretty sure I won, but closer than I'd like it to be. And then the third round, he arguably loses the third round, gives up his back. Gibson's all over him. So now he wins the fight, cashes a 370 ticket, like it's nothing there. But he was actually a plus 155 underdog to Bleckage two months later. UFC doesn't give him a contract. They do bring him back. But now he's a plus one. He goes from a 370 favorite, wins, and he's a 155 underdog. Like not, not a good looking performance. And then the Bleckage fight, he really relies on his wrestling a lot more in that fight. Against Gibson, he was mostly just looking to strike. But when it did, didn't yield the knockout result and he tired, that's when he had problems. In this fight, he's not looking to go down that path. He uses his wrestling. He has very low output, but he secures the positions he needs. He gets the victory. So now you're jumping into the UFC, but you're jumping in the UFC officially as a guy making his debut, like you mentioned, taking on a six-fight UFC veteran. Not only is this six-fight UFC veteran, he's got a win over the Ultimate Fighter um, Latin America champion Enrique Barzola, as you mentioned. He's fought the likes of Zubair Tuhugov. He's fought in the likes of Dan Ige. He stuffed takedowns off Barzola. He stuffed three of four takedowns against Dan Ige. His takedown defense is not that bad. He shows 87% throughout six UFC fights. But his striking's pretty decent. He does have a probably a technical boxing advantage. He does have some serious power in his hands as well. What he needs to do is get Lutz into the second or third round. And when Lutz starts to tire, he needs to find the chin and put it on him. Now, if these guys are both going to rely on their chins, I just, I can't, I'm not confident on either side. And we're looking at a bit of decision prop. This is going to be a sweat. This could be fight of the night. Remember at the top of the show, I said there's going to be multiple potential fight of the nights. I think this is going to be a barn burner. And both guys need for their chins to check up realistically. So I like this fight from an entertainment standpoint. From a betting standpoint, my best prop was fight goes the distance at minus 195. And I don't feel great about that. But I'm, I'm having a hard time gauging who's going to be the definitive winner. You've got lots. I understand where you're coming from in that. But Aguilar's got all the experience, right? Fought the better opposition. Probably has a slight boxing advantage. Cardio's comparable, but he's been into those deeper waters. If he chin checks this kid, then everyone's going to be like, oh, shit, you know what? In hindsight, who's Tucker Lutz ever fought? Ever fought? Yeah. Whereas with Aguilar, it's like, you know every guy he's fought on his list. Even Charles Rosa, who people like to shit on, you know, th these these are all veterans of the game. These are all guys that have been around. Even his debut, same thing, you know? like. So I, I'm kind of I'm kind of giving him that that veteran lean ever so slightly, uh, and and to your point, gun to my head, we always talk about this. It's like don't puss out, make a pick. You you mentioned the fact that it was plus one ninety or plus one eighty five, the decision prop for Lutz. It's plus two hundred decision prop for Aguilar. So so I I I, I kind of lean that way if I had to pick a straight up 
side of the I, I agree with you in your assessment it does go to the decision i think it's a nail biter i think it's greasy i think both guys are stunned and, and wobble but i do think it goes 15 and I, i'm thinking aguilar is going to be on the other end of it but again this one's a close fight to call odds makers are right on it this card's I, very close fights to call I, i'm fully expecting us to be on a lot of opposite sides throughout this uh red and blue baby so, yeah exactly so perfect perfect timing for us to be dressed as the way we are all right let's move on to the next fight here i think we should kind of be on the same side here we got gina mazzini going up against priscilla cachuera gina mazzini would you ever believe me two years ago if you told if i told you that she would be one of the biggest favorites on a ufc pay-per-view card probably not she's going up against uh priscilla cachuera here as a minus 210 favorite uh plus 175 is the return here on uh priscilla cachuera now when i first looked over this card pre-taped and even bother researching or anything like that I was embarrassed and shocked with myself to think that Gina Mazzini was the safest spot on this card. I was just like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Let me splash some cold water in my face. Let me slap myself a couple times. And I still felt the same way. Then I start to run the tape, and then you see how hittable Gina Mazzini is, especially against a girl like Rachel Ostovich, who doesn't have much to offer on the feet. But if you get hit by Priscilla Castro with those same types of punches, things can get shaky very quickly. Gina Mazzini, we've seen in the past when she gets cracked with a nice shot, she likes to do that shell-up offense where she just lets her opponents go off on her. And I could definitely see that here with Priscilla Castro, who does the same exact thing. However... I will buy into the James Cross narrative a little bit with Gina Mazzini, right? She looked the best we've ever seen her last time around, albeit against a girl that was four and five, Rachel Ostovich, that night. Um, I need to see a little bit more before I'm willing to part ways with my money at minus 210 for a girl like Gina Mazzini. Let's distance herself from the past performances she had in the UFC, you know, getting starched by Julia Avila. It starts by Macy Casson and then, you know, beating up 45-year-old Valerie Barney on the regional team. You know what I mean? Like, that that was a bad win in terms of getting back into the UFC. It is what it is. But I don't mind what we saw from her last time around. Let's just see more of it before we trust her at chalk odds here. Now, Priscilla Cashware, like, she lives up to her nickname, the zombie girl, right? She just moves forward, throws a lot of winging hook, hooks. There's no real technique to go with it, right? It's just, I'm going to try to knock your head into the fifth row, and that's really about it. Her cardio doesn't look the greatest, but she still does the zombie thing where, you know, you take her down, she's going to buck you up, and she's going to try to get back to her feet. Once she gets back to her feet, she's going to march you down and try to land some big shots on you. I see Mazzini taking her down time and time and time again. My only concern is we haven't really seen Cashawera off of her back too much. And I'm completely writing out the Valentina Shevchenko fight. I'm not even going to take that into consideration here uh, when I'm talking about Gina Mazzini. And we saw her on the ground a little bit against Luana Carolina, but it just wasn't enough for me to be like, okay, you know, Gina Mazzini should be good enough to kind of hold Cashuera down because what's going to happen if Cashuera keeps getting back to her feet and Gina Mazzini has to deal with the striking of Cashuera? Again, not the most technical, but definitely the more, more powerful striker, and that could definitely give some uh, problems to Mazzini here. Ultimately, I am going to go with Mazzini. I do like her grapple-heavy style a little bit more. I hope she moves her head a little bit better than she did in the Alistovich fight. Um, it is a very risky spot. I will say this. I feel more comfortable with Yagos than I do with Mazzini. Um, but uh, Mazzini by decision plus 100, not too shabby as that is more than likely her path to victory. Does she finish Cashuera? I'd be surprised. I think Cashuera will continuously squirm enough on the ground where she doesn't give up a dominant position and get ground and pounded. I don't think she'll give up a submission either. She is a tough motherfucker, that is for sure. We saw her eat a clean head kick by Luana Carolina and keep chugging forward. Um, 
So yeah, I expect this to go the full 15. I'll go Mazzini, uh, but just be very careful about that heavy power coming back your way from Priscilla Cashware. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, Paul Shaughnessy mentioned this week he was looking at Cashware by KO. It's like six to one, right? And Why again, not? It, yeah, exactly, because it's the same thought process. Like she she didn't come to the UFC with the nickname Zombie Girl. She's established the nickname Zombie Girl through her performances in the UFC, <laughs> where Valentina Shevchenko. Oh my God! Like who even put put this fight together? gets thrashed but shows some heart shows some character the molly mccann fight gets thrashed uh but has her eyes swollen up in the in the third round like almost gets a stoppage victory out of it uh the luana carolina fight my god just so unbelievably hittable gets dropped from that flush head kick and just keeps chugging along she is super tough and now oh and three the ufc could release her but she's so and so much heart let her fight the last fight of her deal right you always sign a four fight deal let her fight the last one she goes out there and knocks out Shayna dobson great you know a year and a half ago now but uh at least she was able to to right the ship and get back in the win column but is is there enough out of there i don't know she's plotting she's come forward she's got that like classic shoot to box style she's heavy on her feet and she just like likes to wing these big overhand hooks uh, if something lands clean on gina mazani yeah you mentioned right we've seen a gina mazani get hit and not react well at all macy chase on like a minute and a half into the first round hits her just overwhelms her and puts her away against the cage and then the julia avila fight where it's a knee to the body let me just play devil's advocate quick here so macy chase on won the ultimate fighter at 100 45 pounds fights routinely now 135 pounds and it's still big for the weight class is a brawler does have some power okay i give her a slight pass there julia avila she's a french top 15 contender in the division she was a, a highly taught prospect before the eubanks loss is somebody that does have some ups upside ran division one track and field at the university of notre dame great athlete and she takes that fight on like four days notice at 135 pounds in fact, her entire career, all of her losses are at 135 pounds. That last law, that last fight, it represented a lot of good things for Mazzani. One, getting in the win column, back in the win column, that's good. It's a confidence builder. Two, as you mentioned, she's with James Krause, Gloria MMA and Fitness. That's huge, man. Her and Tim Elliott were hanging on the strip for far too long. They get back with James Krause. You see how these fighters show up in shape. You see how they got that third round James Krause. Go out there. Uh, give it their all in making improvements. He's working with a lot of mid-level athletes. He's working with a lot of these fringe top 20, top 25, top 30 level of uh, of athletes. And he's turned them into fighters that can go out there and get the win. It's all about game planning, right? But three, it was the first fight down at 125 pounds. Now, this girl on the Instas looked shredded it looked like damn she's taking her strength and conditioning very seriously she's going to show up in this fight in very good shape and you see that performance the seven takedowns mind you it did look like she was gassing out oh yeah it did look like she was getting certainly very tired in there and rachel ostovich not in a position to take advantage Cachoeira, if she is in a position to take advantage, can stuff a couple of those later in the fight takedowns, keep this fight standing, and put it on her, then that's where that TKO prop becomes live. This is a good live betting standpoint as well, where you can see if Gina Mazzani's tiring, because Gina certainly should win the first round, should win the first round and a half. And then as a big plus money tag, you can maybe look at Cachoeira, but... I think I, I'm really in buying into the fact that she's in a better surrounding. She's at a better gym. She's got a lot more uh, focused, attentive training. This is now her second fight with James Krause. This is her second fight at 125 pounds. I expect her to come in, make weight, look good on the scales. And I expect her to go out there and get the grind on. That last fight with Rachel Ostovich, as, as much as it was like, I don't want to do this. She was a minus 185. I, I thought she was closer. I better at 2 to 1, as stupid as I am. But uh, it was around that 2 to 1 range. And as much as none of us wanted to do it, it was like... This is the safe play on the card, isn't it? She should just grind her up against the cage and get it done, right? She does look good in good physical shape. Okay, we, we went with it. We took the play. 
we yielded the positive result. Did she get a little bit tired in there? Maybe, but it was a positive result. I'm hoping the exact same thing here. She needs to go out there, use her physicality, get Cachoeira up against the cage, grind her down into the mat, rinse and repeat for at least two of these rounds, and then survive. If you're looking for just, again, you want to play the safe route, of the safe side of things, this fight's going the distance. The problem with this fight's going the distance is, it's again, it's just not... Well, I mean, it's not the worst tag out there, but that Mizani by plus 100, Mizani by decision... Same thing I believe that you ended up settling on. I, I agree that I think that's the, the most logical outcome for this fight. And that's the one that I'm going to side with as well. So Mizani, get a wrestling going. At worst case, I'm going to keep my eye on the live betting market and I can always hedge out of it. Hats off to Mazzini, especially how she looked going into that third round uh, against Ostovich, right? Like, you literally have James Cross slapping her and be like, hey, fucking look at me. Like, like she was just hunched over, huffing and puffing. Do you remember the fucking uh, the, the Lena Landsberg fight where, like, in between rounds, she was about to puke? Like, they had to get the bucket for her yeah. or something like that. Like she, but I, I do believe she's gotten better conditioning. Obviously, that fight was at 135 pounds. Didn't seem to be caring about much about her physique at that time. But now working with James Cross, she has to be in better shape for sure. Do you want to know something funny? So, uh, Gina Mazzani's she's a a mother, right? So I'm sure that's got to cut into your training time. You know what I mean? Like you, you're you're a full time mom as well. So I, I, that's probably something that's hindered in the past. But when I was in Las Vegas, uh, Gina was a bartender. She was a bartender off the strip, right? This is before she got into the UFC. Right when she got into the UFC, and that's what she was doing, right? She's living in Las Vegas. She's training at Extreme Couture, and her brother is uh, Dirty Dave Mazzani, right? Trains at Extreme Couture, MMA fighter as well. I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, fought uh, Chris, um, Dixon back in the day, Ryan Dixon, and uh, back in Canada, shout out. But anyways, he's like a 25-fight veteran, he's been around, and he was doing pro wrestling, and she was doing pro wrestling, she's bartending, she's single mother, she's living in Las Vegas right off of the strip, it's like it was all destined to not go very well, she starts dating Tim Elliott. He's a fuck up, right? At the time, it's like his his whole life is spiraling out of control. And I saw this interview the other day. Phil Baroni's on it, and they were like, "Oh, you should wrestle Dave Mazzani." And he's like, "I already did. I beat him." He goes, "And I made out with his sister at the after party." And now it, it could be a lie. I don't know, right? But it's Phil Baroni. All I'm getting at is like it sounds like her shit one lining up to be a professional athlete. But but now you leave and you go to Kansas. What else is there to do in Kansas? Get in shape, train, take care of the kid. Tim seems like his career is coming back. He's actually looked at his last two fights. Um, he looks the best when he's with James Krause in Kansas. I'm expecting her to do the same thing. She's still only 32. Not young, not old. Still some good fights in front of her. Still some improvements to be made. I'm banking on it. But it's women's MMA, so like hopefully I'm not eating shitty apple pie this week. I hope not. I hope not. All right. Let's move on to the next fight. Speaking of women's MMA, we got Andrea Lee going up against Antonina Shevchenko. And talk about line movement on this fight, right? You got Antonina Shevchenko open up at a minus 195. Now she's all the way down to minus 125. Been seeing nothing but Andrea Lee love on the Twitter uh, feeds throughout the week. And I, I kind of understand it in terms of a value perspective if people are hitting her at like plus 140, plus 150, and above that. But the, the closer line that this fight gets, I still end up leaning on the Antonina Shevchenko side. I think she's a much better striker. Obviously, she might not be able to match the volume of Andrea Lee. What could end up being the decision maker? But I do think that we see Shevchenko land the better shots, land the better strikes, and probably dictate the pace uh, on, the, on the feet. Um, the concern here, obviously, with Shevchenko is her ground game, right? Doesn't look the greatest. Obviously, gets controlled and worked by Catelyn Chikagin in a way that we've never seen Catelyn Chikagin fight in the past. Uh, and then, obviously, going out there and getting crushed by Shevchenko as well. Um, or, sorry, uh no, sorry, it was just a Chukagian fight for for um for um Shevchenko. 
But still, I expect this fight to play out in the striking realm. And if that's the case, I do think that we'll see the better striking exchanges from the side of Shevchenko here. It's just the volume that ever so slightly does uh, mess me up. Uh, Andrea Lee, right? Three-fight losing streak right now. Not to mention she probably deserved to at least win two of those. I thought for sure she deserved to win the Lauren Murphy fight. Get screwed in her own back uh, backyard. But then again, uh, Lauren Murphy is also from Texas. So I guess can't really call backyard or hometown robbery or anything like that people think the the texas judges are going to be on some shit this weekend and they think if it's going to end up being a close fight that the judges are end up going to giving it to, to andrea lee i don't like to read into that narrative too much i expect the fight to play out the way it's going to play out and you know if it's a close fight it's a fucking close fight uh, with that said, I'm still going to go with Shevchenko on the other end. Uh, I think she's making improvements in the grappling and the wrestling department, uh, not to mention the jiu-jitsu department, beautiful armbar that she was able to throw up against Lucy Putalova. Uh, but I do think that we see Shevchenko win this fight. I think it goes to a decision, right? I, I don't see this fight. Uh, I don't see who finishes it uh, either which way. I don't see a submission either side. I don't see a knockout either side. If anything, it would probably be Shevchenko that gets the knockout. That's plus 950. I don't see that happening, though. Uh, so I'll go Shevchenko by decision at plus 130. That's where I'm leaning here. Uh, yeah, the overs are juiced to shit, right? Over 2.5, minus 425. So it's going to be very tough to kind of sell that to anybody. But uh, I like Shevchenko. Talk me down. Is there is there love on Lee from your side, or do you think Shevchenko cruises as well? Yeah, again, so this is another fight. I got earmarked go the distance, but it's minus 370 if fight goes the distance. So there's nothing that can be gained there. So now you got to figure, well, what side do I want to be on? And whatever side you're going to settle on, you're going to take that side by decision. Uh, I see where the love for Lee is coming in. It just really depends on the improvements that Antonina's made. Now, bear with me here, right? When you look at Valentina, Valentina's last two, three fights in particular, she's been using her wrestling a lot, right? And especially in that last fight with Jessica and Draw, she looked like Jordan Burroughs in there. <laughs> it, it, this is obviously an aspect of her game that she's worked a lot on, and you're seeing her display it. Is she a world-class kickboxer? Yeah. she world champion? Sure. Could she go out there and get the victory? Yeah, no doubt about it. But it's like this is MMA. There's got to be different facets to the game. Right? You have to have different skill set. And uh, it's the least path of least resistance. Why would I want to stand in front of Jessica Andrade, who's just going to bomb me with T-Rex punches, but just rip them? Heavy, heavy power, go to the body, go to the head. When I, I know I can take her down, go with that. Antonina doesn't seem like she can wrestle in the slightest bit. You've seen her exposed in the wrestling department. Time and time again, taken down by Vron, or taken down, uh, I guess most namely, um, when, you, when you look at the Caitlin Jukagan fight with the three takedowns, but it's the ability to not do anything off of her back. Once she got taken down, she almost seems defenseless. But then look at the very next fight against Lipsky, where she scores the takedown, and all of a sudden she's putting on the grappling clinic. I think with Caitlin Jukagan, Kagan's a black belt right now, I'm pretty sure, right? She spent brown. a lot of time, yeah, yep. brown belt, spent a lot of time working on her on her wrestling out in New York, spending a lot of time at Nicotone's MMA, spending a lot of time putting, just refining her all-around game. So getting taken down by her, yeah, not, not the end of the world. Andrea Lee's, did, she's dealt a lot with takedown defense issues. In fact, you can attribute the entire three-fight losing streak to takedown defense issues. So if Antonina Shevchenko can come in here and have a bit of a polished wrestling game and can mix in the wrestling, then yeah, it's her, it's her fight to take. It's just there's not enough for me to go off of. We just got the Lipsky fight. Beyond that, it doesn't appear that she can wrestle. The Roxanne Modafferi fight she's taken down five times doesn't appear to be physically strong enough to stuff Roxanne's shots, which is a bit problematic, but five takedowns, and again, can't do anything off her back. Kaylin Chikagian wasn't really known for her wrestling, puts a clinic on her. Three takedowns, she's not really able to do anything off her back. The Lucy Potolova fight, she armbars her, but again, she, she's taking down in that fight. So... 
If the fight was to stay standing, is she a better striker than Andrea Lee? Sure, but she's low volume, right? When you look at her numbers as well, it's the same thing. 66, 64, 16, 25, when she's getting taken down. So now you go back in her kickboxing career and you look at her, her time in lion fight and you look at all of her Muay Thai fights. They're all decision fights and they're all low volume. She's just not her sister. That's something that we have to remember. That's something that we have to come to grips with. And when you line this fight with her as a nearly two to one favorite, I think you're basing that a lot on her sister, her last name. So with Lee, I look at Lee and it's like the polar opposite, right? You 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 mentioned the fact that it's like, okay, you know what? She's on a three fight losing streak. But you can make an argument in all those fights that's like she's out there fighting. When Shevchenko was losing. She was completely dominated by Montefiore. Completely yeah. dominated by Chikagin. She's not in those fights. She's out there getting beaten up. When she's in against low-level competition, she could look good. When you look at Lee, meanwhile, it's like Lee's won her three fights fairly convincingly. But the Joanne Calderwood fight, it's a good fight, man. That's a split decision to a top contender like Calderwood, who was going to get a title shot before she took that bum fight. Then the Laura Murphy fight, she's robbed, right? She outlands her 104 to 80. But it's the takedown defense, as I mentioned. A couple of greasy right takedowns. Of, the round. <laughs> of course. And then the Roxanne Modafferi fight, right? She outstrikes her 97 to 60. Takes her down three times. But gets taken down four times. Now, as you can see, Roxanne Modafferi's wrestling and grappling is on a whole other level than Valentina. Or than, uh, than Antonina. Not Valentina. What am I talking about? <laughs> than Antonina Shevchenko, right? So yeah. she's in that fight. She's in the Murphy fight, probably got robbed. She's in the Calderwood fight. She's very competitive in all these fights. She can land over 100 significant strikes. She has the volume. She's got the the strength. And she's also scoring offensive takedowns. She took down Calderwood three times. She took down Roxanne four, uh, three times as well, right? I think if anybody's getting the takedown in this fight, it's not Antonina. I think if anybody's getting the takedown, it's going to be Lee. And if the fight stays standing, I think Lee's just going to double her up and hopefully two to one her and just probably, you know, even if she lands the better shots, we land more of them. As far as power goes, Antonin doesn't have any power standing. So she's not going to knock her out. She's not going to wobble her. She's not going to land some huge eye-catching shot for the judges. If anything, it's just going to come down to work rate. And I'm hoping Lee just outworks her for at least the first two rounds. And then she takes the third round off, so be it. But this thing lines up probably for a decision. Yeah, probably. It's going to the decision. And it's probably going to be a close, competitive, maybe even be a split decision, depending on who the two, three judges are, are, are watching this fight. But I think Lee's going to come out on the other side of it because of her ability to score the takedowns when she needs them, as well as uh, just the better output all around. So Lee by decision is plus two. Uh, it's 167, I believe. Let me just bring that up. You 168. Yeah. So Andrea Lee by decision is plus 168. It's a good plus money tag. The fact that this fight to go to the decision is minus 370. It's going to the decision, right? The fact that both of them are plus money to win a decision, it makes you it makes you almost want to bet both sides. If you would put $100 on both sides, this thing's going to decision, right? One of them's going to win that decision. It's a plus money. You lose one bet, you win one bet, but because it's plus money, you'd walk out on the other side of it. You'd win $68 on the lead bet. And what was the what was the Valentina or sorry, the uh, Antonina Shevchenko by decision? Antonina, I think, was plus, let me just confirm that, plus 130. Right. So you would hope that Lee wins so you win $68 as opposed to 30 bucks. <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is that is that this thing's probably going to decision. Whoever you decide at the end of the day, this is who I feel comfortable with. This is who I'm picking. I, I think you try to juice that and you take it by decision. 
I think it's interesting that you said like uh, Lee will more than likely be the one kind of getting the takedowns. I think it could work either way. I think if Antonina kind of pulls the Lauren Murphy card here and just waits it to go for a takedown at the end of the round, that could yeah. potentially work too. I think that Lee's takedown defense is slacking as well. So it might just come down to who the fuck lands takedowns and is able to kind of you know uh, control that aspect of the fight, especially considering that both these fighters are strikers, right? <laughs> so I can't wait to see how. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Two <laughs> strikers, two strikers, and the whole breakdown is who's going to score the takedown. <laughs> I love this sport. Love this sport. Exactly. All right, let's move on to the next one. This one's an interesting one. We got Jamie Pickett going up against Jordan Wright. Pretty much evens here. Um, I wish we were getting someone slightly better than Jamie Pickett because I would love to fade Jordan Wright once again. But uh, it's tough. Jordan Wright's not that guy. I think a lot of people are thinking that they're getting. Uh, he's durable. That's probably the best thing I can say about him. You know, he went to a hellish three rounds against Punahali Soriano, went a hellish three rounds against Stefan and Chukwi, and even the Javon Patti fight, right? He that's another big striker that he was able to take his shots and then eventually put him away in that second round. But there isn't too much urgency. Like, you don't see that Javon Patti type of finish from him quite often against higher-level competition. It almost seems like he allows his opponents to kind of set the pace and he just holds their hand and lets them find a, fucking do it just as he did it in the Tafan and Chukwi fight, right? But we've seen in Chukwis, he's kind of slower at this weight class as Junior Park was able to kind of uh, show us last weekend. Um, but Jamie Pickett just was like, all right, I'm going to let Tafan fucking control the pace here, and I'm just going to go with him. I think if he has one of those Javon Patti moments where he just goes out there and, and blitzes Jordan Wright, he could absolutely put him out there. Uh, I don't think Wright has great durability. I think he's quite chinny. I think that uh, Pickett has the power to put him out, but he's, he just... I just have a bad taste in my mouth from Pickett in terms of wanting to actually pick him to win this fight. Uh, again, I, I think people that are just auto-fitting Jordan Wright here uh, might be in for a tougher fight than they're expecting, but I do expect Pickett to go out there and still pull off the, the knockout probably in the second round here. So I'll go with Pickett. Uh, minus 105 again, not too bad of a line straight up, but we're here talking about props. Um, right, or Sorry, Pickett by KO plus 205, not too bad of a line. Another line that I don't mind, Fight won't start round three minus 140. I think that's solid, especially considering that Jordan Wright's never been to a third round. The longest he's ever been is five minutes and 48 seconds. That's it. He's been to a second round, I think, twice in his career, which is absolutely crazy. But again, Pickett, not the most reliable. The best thing you can say about him is that he's durable. And if he can take a couple of shots of Wright and kind of counter him uh, perfectly, I think he can absolutely put Jordan Wright on his butt and then eventually finish him. But again, Pickett, I don't think he's UFC caliber. Um, I don't think Jordan Wright is uh, the UFC caliber either. Maybe he's like a LFA champion or or fucking uh, AFC champion, but I don't think he's going to cut in the UFC much. We we do have to credit Jordan Wright though, though, right? The guy is explosive. He's athletic. The guy has some good physical capabilities, which is why he was able to dust the cans that he was able to dust. But then once you start fighting legitimate competition, it's going to start catching up to you. Just as when we saw, you know, Joaquin Buckley finish him, Anthony Hernandez finish him. And I think that Jamie Pickett will probably be added to that list and end up finishing him too. I just wish he was a little bit more trustworthy. So I'll go pick it, pick it by KO plus 205. Fight won't start round three minus 140. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, that's pretty fair. I, this is the least sexiest play in my opinion, but I kind of went the other way with Wright. And I think that he's just a sleeper pick. I think he's the guy that people write off. And you and I talk about this week in, week out. It's like you come in, you, you lose your debut, you don't look good in the process, and it's like an instant fate. It's an auto fate. I want nothing to do with this guy. And the way he got knocked out especially, not good. He gets knocked out right at the tail end of the first round 
survives, survives the buzzer, goes back to his corner, and he's like slurring his words. He's like yeah. mumbling. His coaching staff should not have let him go out for the second round with Joaquin Buckley. They do. He walks out and just immediately first punch that lands. He just topples over. So I was like, this is a bad spot because oftentimes you'll see guys get rocked in a round. You'll see guys get dropped in a round. You'll see guys have to overcome adversity. And in his case, it was like, no, man, his brain shot right off. So it's like not only is it a chin issue, it's like a neurological issue. You don't really want to feel trustworthy with this guy going forward that this is punchy kicky, man. Eventually somebody's going to chin check him. And how is he going to react to that? Anthony Hernandez, Anthony Hernandez is a submission artist, right? Comes on the ultimate or comes on contender series. One shot, bam, 30 seconds into the fight. He completely topples over. It's yeah. a no contest on his record because Hernandez is smoking the reef, right? But it's a clean, it's a clean victory, man. And it's not even like the biggest punch in his arsenal. It was just like a half-hearted shot, lands flush, knocks him out. You can't now bank on this guy and his chin moving forward. Definitely a prompt. Pickett's best asset, like you said, his chin. Right, one guy's got a very untrustworthy chin, and in Pickett's case, it's like that's that's the one thing he banks off of. That three hard rounds with with uh, Soriano Pugliano, like you mentioned, that counts for something. The three rounds with Tufan Injiqui, Injiqui drops him, he knocks him down, he lands like 120 significant strikes, and this kid just keeps trucking the entire time. Now I had a ticket on that fight to go the distance, and I had Injiqui by decision. Both very big plus money tanks because it's again, it's like wow, Injiqui is just a wrecking machine. If he touches you, he puts you over. Pickett has never been knocked out. He has been chin-checked. He survived. And he showed that again in the Injiqui fight. But the one thing he showed again in the Injiqui fight is like he's just got such low volume. It's definitely his problem. I mean, he, he this is a guy that fought on Dana White's Contender Series three times in order to get that contract. Submitted by Charles Bird. Beyond that, he lands five significant strikes in four minutes and 55 seconds of action. So almost a full round, he lands five. They bring him back against Soriano where he is getting taken down but he lands 36. The Pati fight, he gets outstruck in the first round ever so slightly, loses the first round, in my opinion. And then the second round, like you said, man on fire. Why? Because I've just lost the last two times on Contender Series. I'm not getting a contract. This is my last go at it. Who's ever been on the Contender Series four times and gone 0-3? Like, it's not, not happening. I need to let my hands go. And Pati's a little undersized for the weight class, and he looks fat and out of shape in the fight. And so he starts to tire as well. And I think that's what allows him to capitalize on it and he knocks out Patty and it's a, it's a good victory it sets him up for his UFC debut and it doesn't go his way than Injiqui but the Injiqui fights the same shit dude it's low output now last week when we talked about Injiqui versus Park we we analyzed the fact that Injiqui is very slow and that Park probably takes his fight to the ground and that would be his best path to victory don't stand in front of this machine of a man Take him down, grind him, test his gas tank, but the takedowns would be key. And in in the in the third round, I guess in the second round as well, takedowns were key, but he didn't even need them. He just beat him with the jab. He was that much faster than him. Park just beats him with the jab routinely. Pickett, meanwhile, is not even trying. Homie's got an 80-inch reach, and he's not even he's not even letting his hands go. Like he just kind of sits there and accepts it. And so to me, I, I think that right, even though we're talking about how chinny he is, if Pickett's not going to let his hands go, then he's not gonna He's not going to land that devastating blow. And then for that matter, I think that right 6'2", 77-inch reach, he's a big body, he's athletic, he moves well, he likes to pressure. You see in the Ike fight as well, he pressures. The Gabriel Checo fight, he pressures. But he's got a great kick game, you know, Beverly Hills Ninja. He likes to kick a lot. And if he pressures forward against Pickett, Pickett moves off, moves backwards, doesn't counter, doesn't let his hands go. Wright could win, certainly win rounds. If Wright stays back and just lets his kick go and dances around the outside, we're in the big cage, I believe, because they're going back to Texas. Yep. 
He, he's faster than Pickett. He's got better output than Pickett. He could just chip away with the kick game, and, allow, and then Pickett's going to have to chase him, and again, let his hands go, to which I, I, I just don't know he's actually going to do. So last but not least is that, you know, we love, love shitting on Wright. Watch the first three minutes of Wright versus Buckley. He wins the first three minutes. It's like Buckley had to really gauge landing one of those shots because all he's doing is just outworking him with his kicks, outworking him, outworking him. I think that could be the path here against Pickett as well as outworking him. Now, good, again, if he's going to get knocked out, I think it's going to come slightly later on. So the plays that I'm looking at this one specifically, the one I like was the over one and a half. Minus 150, one and a half rounds. Wright comes forward on him, lands some stuff. I, I know if Wright wins, Pickett's not getting knocked out. Because even, even though he's a potent finisher, like you said, he's cr crushed a lot of cans. I have a lot of faith in Pickett's durability and his, and his ability to take some damage. So I think that it'd be getting that over one and a half. And then he might be able to catch Wright. We're going to catch that one and a half, I'm hoping. That fight goes the distance plus 175. Now, like you mentioned, Wright's never been past two rounds. So it'd be foolish to pick him to go that. But he's fought so many shitty guys. The fights don't go the distance. And the guys that he's lost to, Joaquin Buckley, the guy with the greatest KO in the history of KOs on his record, and Anthony Hernandez, who's certainly no slouch, so, like, again, it could potentially go that way. But a, a big big number I looked at was the right by decision was plus 390. Mm. So, again, if he's going to win this fight, I think it goes the distance. If Pickett's going to win this fight, he's knocking him out. So, blue, red, you have the Pickett <laughs> by knockout. I think I got the right by decision. But confidence level, very, very minuscule, very, very low. I'm just hoping that he puts it together and, uh, and comes out with a better sophomore outing. Yeah, this this is again. I'm gonna harp on it all fucking stream. This is a tough card. I see some people in the comment section talking about parlays and all that type of shit. Good luck. Like even your uh, your 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 PRPs and all it's that. It's gonna shit be tough. It's gonna be tough this weekend, man. I think there's gonna be some upsets. I think we had six out of the nine underdogs or five out of the nine underdogs win on this past weekend. Not to mention Bellator. We had a lot of fucking underdogs win on that. PFL. PFL exactly so I think uh, this weekend as well we could see a ton of upsets all right let's move on to the next fight we got Mike Grundy going up against Lando Veneta another fight I believe I counted it while you were doing your breakdown nine out of 12 fights are lined up minus 160 or better and this is absolutely one of them we got minus 125 on Mike Grundy plus 100 ish uh, on uh, Mr. Lando Veneta it's just so hard to trust Lando right like it's just too tough uh, to trust him considering how he's been fighting as of late Mike Grundy at least brings to bring some serviceable, serviceable skills to the table especially with his wrestling that first round that he had against Movzar Evolev was just absolutely insane right I don't know what the fuck Movzar has in terms of gills or lungs or whatever the fuck he does to breathe because how he was getting out of that dark stroke the way that he was shit I'm 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 happy right I mean I was riding Movzar Evolev very heavily in that fight and I was sweating my pants off but luckily once he was able to get out of that he was really able to piece up Mike Grundy after that and I think Grundy really was sucking wind after that too considering how much power and and squeeze he was putting on that submission I still do think even without that squeeze and all that Grundy has a tad bit of a cardio issue himself I think he does slow down later in fights and I think that could eventually be his kryptonite is Lando Venata the guy to actually take advantage of that i don't think so i, I don't think so uh, i think the land of Anata that we initially saw when he fought tony ferguson in his ufc debut that's a far cry from what we're what we've been getting nowadays the guy just doesn't so show much urgency you know giving up takedowns especially considering he has a, a wrestling takedown or a wrestling background of his own i think grundy will be more than successful in terms of grounding this fight and i think that we'll see grundy have a ton of success in terms of controlling this fight on the ground i think there is a potential for a submission here for grundy uh, i believe it's 
around plus 600, if I'm not mistaken. I don't mind a little bit of a stab there, considering how much he likes to actually hunt for chokes and hunt for submissions. But I think at the end of the day, he's going to be able to control this fight on the ground for the for the better part of it. And I think at the end of the day, I like uh, Grundy by uh, decision here. Even though over 2.5 at minus 190, a little chalky. But I think that both guys are durable enough for us to at least see uh, the halfway point of the third round. Even fight starts round three, minus 215, a little bit uh, more chalky. I'd rather take the minus 190 and eat the extra two and a half minutes. Uh, but Grundy by decision, plus 205. Me likey, likey, that spot right there. And again, if you want to get cheeky with it, Grundy by submission at plus 630, not too bad of a spot either. Am I not giving enough credence to Lando Venata? Talk me down a little bit. Uh, or do you think Grundy actually cruises here? Yeah, yeah, I gotta agree with you. I think I, I'm gonna have to go with Grundy as well. Listen, I mean, with Lando Venata, it was like magic. Magic UC debut, Tony Ferguson, expected to lose, goes out there, drops him twice, puts on an absolute career showing, loses the fight, but it was expected. He drops Ferguson twice, stock rises. Then he has a, a KO of the year contender against John McDessie. It's like, what can this kid do wrong? He's at a Greg Jackson's camp, which was hot at the time. Guy wrestled collegiately, knows how to wrestle. He's got a funky striking style that's clearly got a lot of power. He's just adding to his highlight reel. He's taking off uh, name guys. Sky's the limit for him. And then it was just like, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was like a mental lapse. I don't know if he wasn't able to put it all together. The Jackson-Winklejohn situation just kind of started to crumble and fall apart. I don't know that his training really ever progressed. His funky striking style, guys start to figure it out. You'll notice a lot of the times Lando Venata in the first round looks awesome. Yeah. Lando Venata in the second and the third round, they figure it out. And now that there's more tape readily available on him, guys figure it out. He likes to line up the right hand. He's got his hands low. He's going to dart in and out. He likes to set up the low kick. Like you, Once you start to figure out his timing and his rhythm... That's when they start to hit him. For a guy that's like reflex-based, moves his head, he doesn't get out of the way particularly all that often. Gets hit, gets tagged up, gets busted up, and it just doesn't look great for the judges. So beyond that hot start, you know, the David Tamor fight, he takes a beating in. But it's the two takedowns against David Tamor. It's the takedown against Bobby Green. Takedown against Drocker Close. Two of them against Matt Frivola. Four of them against Mark Casey, And then three of them in the Bobby Green rematch, which is his last time out. These guys aren't wrestlers. These guys shouldn't be able to go out there and take you down like that. As I mentioned, dude wrestled collegiately for like one semester, but he was in a D1 program. Knows how to wrestle. Out at, out at Jackson Winklejohn's camp in New Mexico. And yet, guys that are basically known for their striking are able to go out there and take him down. Bobby Green is a low-output counterpuncher counter boxer. He's able to take him down both times that he fights him, but particularly that last time, his last fight, three times. Mark D. Casey is a British striker. He's able to go out there and take him down four times. Uh, th this has all becomes troublesome for me. So one thing I noticed about Lando is that when you see a lot of interviews about him, he's like a wandering man. He's like a lost soul, right? He'll often talk about, oh, well, we're training at Jackson Winklejohn. Is it a coma? Is it the, like the, the offshoot side of it, right? They're basically training themselves, you know, this and that, dabbling in that, oh, a new version of myself. And it's the same old results. The Matt Frivola fight, 10-8 round in the third, he just took an absolute beating in that fight. You see his trajectory going down. You see his stock going down. You see the damage starting to pile up. You see him just starting to question himself. And then, for whatever reason, now, he's dropping down to 145 pounds. So it was interesting to me at first. I was like, shit, you know what? Maybe he should have been a 45 all along. Like Gunnar Nelson. Why does Gunnar Nelson fight at 170? Makes no sense. Yeah, right. Gunnar Nelson at 55 could be something, maybe. Venata as a 45 are intriguing. He's fought a lot of heavy name guys. He's fought a lot of good guys. He's fought a lot of guys that could not make 145 in their wildest dreams. 
So this would be a better move for him. Also, takedown defense seems to be an issue. Him at 45, he should be a little bit stronger. The guy should be a little bit weaker, you know, than he's used to. Why can't he turn it all and put it all together? But then I seen an interview like two days ago where they asked him about the weight cut and he's like, uh, I'm all in. Like, it's it's all or nothing. There's no turning back. Like, it basically, to paraphrase, it's like, my back's up against the wall. I, I can't figure anything else out other than I'm going to try this way. So I'm just dedicating it all. And this is one last shot. I'll make the weight. I'll show up. I'll give it a go. But like, kind of like he was recognizing like the days the days are getting numbered wasn't a great perspective to see it from now with Grundy doesn't even matter how big and strong you are Grundy's going to want to take you down Grundy's going to take you down the guy's a Commonwealth 2014 Commonwealth bronze medalist as far as wrestling on the UK circuit tremendous his father Dave Grundy was like the head of the national team for like 20 years Mike's been wrestling his entire life this guy's very adequate in the wrestling the one thing is is that he 2014 he wins uh, the Commonwealth bronze medal, right? 2014 is also the year he starts his pro career. So here's a guy that wrestled into his late 20s and then turned pro. He's just learning on the job. And as he, as a result, he's such a great athlete, such a good wrestler. On the regional scene, he crushes these guys. There's no competition for him. As you start to fight into the UFC, now you're going to have a problem. In his fight with Nadir Amani, I thought Nadir Amani was doing an excellent job of stuff in the takedowns. He went to alpha male for the camp. He showed up in great shape. He stuffs those takedowns. You see Grunty plant that right hand. Not a not a natural striker, but you see he's adding those tools into his game. And then the Evloev fight. Who wants to go out there and wrestle Evloev? But Grundy does. Six takedowns. That Darce choke in the first round. Nasty. Tight. As you mentioned, gills. With, with Russia, you don't know it's in the supplements. He probably does have gills. Um, once he survives that, maybe Grundy burns his arms out. But it's also Grundy's getting pushed now. He's getting pushed. He's never been pushed. He never, he's never had to dig deep and go to that next set. But the fact that he goes three rounds, the fact that he never quit on himself, great gut check performance, great learning experience. He is 34, but I honestly think he's got the skill set here in that go out there and, and wrestle, get the takedowns. Striking, yeah, maybe you have improved it. Maybe you have a big right hand. But this kid can take a punch. Lando can take a punch. And you don't want to be striking for too long with him because he'll throw a spinning back fist or he'll throw a spinning back kick. Or he'll throw a Superman punch. Or he'll switch stances and throw a head kick. Like, it's tricky. So just go out there and take him down. And so the last thing I want to mention is that when I heard the Lando interview, I was like, I don't like what I'm hearing from a, from a, from a mindset perspective. The Grundy interview, greatest quote ever. I'm going to chip away at his soul. Oh, <laughs> I was hoping you were just going to say chip away. You know, take this guy down and grind him. I'm going to chip away, right? Chip away at his soul. Shit, he was already questioning his spirit heading in. Uh, yeah. I, I, I like it. So I, I got Grundy, and I agree with your assessment 100%. If Grundy gets the job done, Grundy by decision. I like fight goes the distance, minus 160. Even if Lando shows up reinvigorated, stuffs some takedowns, and boxes him up like Evloev did, we'll take a decision, right? Minus 160, not a terrible price tag. But that Grundy by decision at plus 205. I think that's where the money lies. So that's, that's, uh, that's what I'm looking at myself. I like it. I like it. I can't believe we're already at the the prelims, uh, the, the main event prelim here because we got Jacare Souza going up against Andre Munez here. Uh, minus 125 for Jacare, plus 105 for Andre Munez. I, I'm finding it hard to believe how to side with Munez in this spot other than having to bring up the fact that Jacare Souza is 41 years old. Outside of that, I saw one of my guys, DFS by the numbers, shout out to Brady, put out, put out a tweet saying, try to convince me that Andre Munez wins this fight without mentioning Kevin Holland or 41 years old. 
probably can figure out a way to, to, to come up with a way that Andre Munez wins this fight, right? He doesn't really bring much to the table in terms of the striking. He doesn't really have heavy power in his hands. So how much do we have to worry about this glass jaw narrative on Jacare Souza? Not to mention Jacare only been knocked out four times, I believe. Uh, you know, lastly, obviously by Kevin Holland in a meme of a KO. Um, I think if we saw that fight actually play out over the three-round period, we know exactly how it would go considering how Kevin Holland's next two fights ended up going. Uh, and then... Uh, what was it? Uh, Robert Whitaker in 2017 and Gegard Mousasi in 2009. Those are the only times he's been knocked out. So this glass chin narrative about Jokri, I think, is being completely overblown. And obviously, it doesn't look good having that Kevin Holland fight in his last fight. But I don't think that Andre Muniz is going to be able to land anything big enough to actually cause him trouble in that aspect. I actually think that Jokri Souza has better striking, to be honest. I think he has the better um, striking. I think he has the better uh, power as well. I think that... Um, uh, and, and the jiu-jitsu, even if it gets to the ground, I think he's still the better jiu-jitsu guy. Damian Maya is showing us that you can be old as fuck and still go out there and tie these guys up in a pretzel if you want. And I think that Jacare Souza can do the same thing here to Andre Muniz, who in his own right is a solid black belt to jiu-jitsu. The issue that I have with Muniz is he seems to accept his back a little bit too much. I think he goes out there and he just... He's a little bit too confident in his guard game. Probably won't be here against Jacare, but when you see it on tape time and time again, it's hard to believe that he's just not going to accept that position or that he's going to accept that position once again. So I'm having a hard time in terms of figuring out the four times that Munez has been not, uh, finished or, or lost, it was by knockout. Jacare Souza has power in his hands. He could potentially produce that sort of knockout, whether it's a ground and pound, whether it's on the feet. Or does he go out there and win this fight by decision? Because that plus 300 looks fucking juicy. Mm. Looks very, very nice. And I, I, I ultimately will end up siding with Jokri to win the fight by... Ah, it, For me, it's a toss-up between knockout and decision. Knockout, uh, or sorry, decision being uh, plus 300. And then obviously knockout being closer to plus 330. Uh, again, we, we can do what you did in that... Uh, I forgot which fight it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fight. Exactly. Just play both of them. See what happens. And, and maybe you end up uh, with more money on either side. So... Ultimately, I'll go with Jokri by uh, by TKO. I'm going to take that plus 330 and uh, say that he wins by finish. Uh, and even, I think he has a slightly better gas tank too. So if you want to try to poke that round three, plus 1,200, not too bad of a line there. I think Munez is a gasser. I think that Jokri does have a better gas tank. And it's hard to take out that that thing in your brain of when Jokri was fighting Calvin Gaslam, right? If you remember that third round, he was stalking him the entire time. It seemed like Calvin Gaslam wanted to get out of that fight because Jokri was just staying in his face, landing big shots, landing big, big throws. And then obviously the Chris Weidman fight after that goes out there and knocks him out silly in the third round. So I think that Jacare's power is sustainable from minute one to minute 15, whereas Andre Munez, that guy's gas tank starts to take a hit roughly after that six or seven minute mark. I'm expecting the same thing here. I like Jacare. KO, I think decision is live as well, but ultimately I'll go KO at plus 330. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, you talk about suspect gas tank. It's like, yeah, the, the Kelvin Gastelum fight, third round, marching him down. I thought he won that fight, dude. It was in Brazil, yeah. too. Like, why are you going to screw? Right why are you going to screw Jacare in Brazil, man? Uh, and the Chris Weidman fight, he's arguably down two rounds, and he just comes at him zombie mode and knocks him out. And then just two fights ago, because we're all talking about Kevin Holland. Brady's right. Everyone's talking about Kevin Holland. Uh, two, just two fights ago, he goes up a weight class. It goes five rounds with the current light heavyweight champion of the world. So, yeah, where's this narrative that the gas tank's all that bad? But, like, like I'll agree, right? you got to talk about the fact that he's 41 because he is, and his best days are certainly behind him. This is a guy that's been a top three light heavyweight, or sorry, middleweight in the world for a decade. He has always been, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. It's had a strike force, really. But he's always been knocking on the door. You know, him, Yoel, Luke Rockhold, Weidman, those were the guys. But the sports passed them all by. Yoel's now in his mid to late 40s. He's released from the promotions with Bellator. Chris Weidman just shattered his leg. 
you know, maybe he comes back for a, a retirement fight at some point in the next couple of years. But, like, you know, his best days are behind him. Luke Rockhold, oh, my God. Luke, Rock, Luke Rockhold's career is completely in disarray, and durability is completely at the window. So, so yeah, Jacques is just like the rest of those guys. Father time is catching up to him. Father time is beating him. We talk about Maya being able to pull it together. Maya's like a unicorn, man. But even, yeah. like, Fabrice Overdoom, great jiu-jitsu, older guy now, can still play it, can still get it. But if you, if you hit this guy, he's not what he used to be. And his gas take, it's not what it used to be. And I saw you just, uh, congrats on the cash. You just spammed a Ferreira ticket on that Verdum fight from PFL last weekend. You were just like, ah, fuck it, plus 200. But 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 it's a good play because realistically, it's like, dude, Verdum does this. Dude lost to Alexei Olenek just two fights back. Yeah, He's got a suspect gas tank. He's a lot older now. And your jiu-jitsu, sometimes it's just not enough. And so that that's, I guess, kind of the worry with Jacques Ray. I'm picking him. I think this fight goes the distance, minus 110. I got Jacques Ray by decision plus three hundred, but you can't you can't ignore the fact that he's forty one and slowing down. You can't ignore the fact that the game is starting to catch up to him. And the last thing I'll mention, I won't mention the Kevin Hall knockout. Thank you. What what I will mention that's a little bit troubling in that fight is that Kevin Holland had just been awarded his black belt from Travis Luter out of Texas. What we've seen from from his black belt in the subsequent two fights is what black belt. Non-existent, <laughs> right? Zero. The, fuck it. What, what are you talking about, black belt? Martin yeah. Vittori and Derek Brunson literally had zero, zero problems with it in the slightest bit. But if you rewatch Jacques Rivers' Holland, Holland's throwing up high guard. Holland's chasing armbars and triangles. That's what creates a scramble that gets him up the first time. And then the second time Jacques ends up on him, he's already tired. He's already tired just shooting the two takedowns. So then I go back and I watch the Jack Hermanson fight. Jack Hermanson, he gives no respect to Jacques ground game. He takes him down, takes him down three times, Sits in his guard, has his way with him, out grapples him. Jacare again, grappling has always been another level. But but now you're older, and now you're working on your striking, and now you're working on different aspects of your game. Something's got to go by the wayside, and if grappling goes by the wayside, you're in trouble. Now his main training partner is Rodolfo Vieira, who we know is one of the best BJJ guys in the world. But he's got terrible cardio, and in these fights, once he gets tired, his grappling goes out the fucking window. So I guess I'm a little bit worried that with Andre Muniz, third-degree BJJ black belt, very apt on the ground, has a very likes to play the guard game. I'm not worried about him submitting Jacare Souza. That that I'm not worried about. I, I'm worried about him ending up on top. Maybe him ending up a sweep. Him making Jacare work. Jacare getting tired. And then him all of a sudden winning a couple positional exchanges, getting the nod on the scorecards. Either way, this thing's going the distance. And at minus 110, that's a play I love. But I'll admit, I saw that Jacare plus 300. I thought, what's Jacare's path here? Take him down. We, we know everybody who's fought in Muniz takes him down. He gives up takedowns to everybody because he likes to play his guard game. Jacare's the wrong guy to play a guard game against. So Jacare gets those takedowns, stays on top, stays comfy, doesn't overexert himself. He picks up a decision. Plus 300, sign me up. But if for whatever reason... Andre Muniz was able to tire out the legend and, uh, you know, again, win a couple of these scrambles, still going the distance. He's not knocking out Jacare, in my opinion, even though Holland was a weird position. I really, this guy's not known for, he's got one knockout in the last seven years, and it was four years ago. He's not a knockout threat. I don't think he knocks out Jacare. He's a submission threat to almost anybody in the world at this weight class, except for Jacare. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think this thing's going the distance regardless, minus 110, but the pick's going to be Jacare, Jacare by decision, plus 300. 
Yeah, this isn't Fabinski who like absolutely panics as soon as he ties up with somebody with a black belt. <clears throat> Gerald Mearshart a couple weeks ago. All right, let's move on to the next one. Here we got uh, the main card kicking off here. I do want to remind you guys, we've got over 230 people in the live chat right now. Shout out to everybody supporting us on this Thursday evening. Make sure you guys hit that like. Make sure you guys hit that uh, subscribe. And uh, near the ending of the show, I will announce who I'm going to be having on tomorrow's uh, The Ultimate Way-In Show. Got a solid lineup for you guys. Can't wait to show you guys who it is. But you guys will have to wait until the end of the main event and before we get into the three best prop bets. All right, let's get into the main card here. And I'm hoping that topology is on some shit as to why Matt Schnell and Hajario Bontrin is the third fight into the main card. But I'm going to go with topology's uh, order here. And they got Shane Burgos and Edson Barboza kicking off the main card here. Not too shabby of a fight. Obviously, odds very close, just like the rest of the card. Minus 140 for Shane Burgos. Goes plus one twenty four at some Barboza. Now, before getting into the tape for this fight, I'm like, I like me some Barboza. I think that Barboza should be a solid spot here, especially considering the last the last images I have of Shane Burgos is him getting nuked by J Josh Emmett over and over again in that fight. Uh, the fact that he even survived two knockdowns from a power puncher like Josh Emmett was very commendable. Uh, but Josh Emmett, absolute beast, man. Like, we don't give him enough credit. If I'm not mistaken, he's been an underdog more often than not in his fights, and he still comes out on the, the winning end. The guy has 10 knockdowns in nine fights. Four of those against Felipe Arachas. Two of those against Shane Burgos. The guy just goes out there and drops dudes for a living. That's, that's what he does. So I'll give Shane Burgos a little bit of a pass for that, that Josh Emmett fight. Edson proposal, we always know what his kryptonite is, right? Either you go out there, you grapple fuck him. If you don't have grapple fucking, put him on his back foot. Don't let him be the one dictating the pace. Don't let him get his kicks off. Don't let him get comfortable in his striking range. And I think that's exactly what we're going to get here with Shane Burgos. I think Shane Burgos is still a, a high-level fighter in this featherweight division. I think that he still has a lot to give, even though he's had a couple stumbles with the Calvin Cater knockout a couple years ago. And then obviously the uh, the Josh Emmett lost last, uh, last time out. But I think that this is a perfectly style matchup for him, as long as he doesn't get put off in terms of uh, his lights going off or anything like that. I think he can pressure Barboza from minute one to minute 15. Just stay in his face, put out the jab there. He has a versatility of uh, of strikes that he can throw at Barboza. Obviously, Barboza, a very high-level Muay Thai fighter himself, but just not the same fighter when he's the one fighting off of his back foot. And I think that's what Shane Burgos is going to be successful in doing throughout this fight. Um, my concern is just Burgos' durability. Is it there? I think it still is. Uh, and as long as he stays conscious in this fight, he should completely win it. So the way that I'm looking at it is that there's two things. The Edson Barboza narrative recently has been he's going down to 145. This is obviously his third stint there, and he's made the weight. How he's making the weight, I have fucking no idea. There's no towel to even do a towel trick if you wanted to do that, but the guy just make the weight. I don't know where the weight is coming off from, but the guy's aging. He's 35 years old, right? He's getting up there in weight. This weight cut can't be getting any easier, and at a certain point, that durability issues are those durability issues are going to start to catch up to him. I think that Shane Burgos is a guy that can go out there and exploit that type of uh, issues. With that said, we haven't truly seen it be exploited yet in the featherweight division, so we don't know exactly when that's going to happen. It could happen against Burgos, but I'll give Barboza the benefit of the doubt. I'll go with Burgos to actually win this fight by decision just by pretty much outpointing him all over 15 minutes, but he has to be sure that he stays in front of his face. And that's kind of the Tiger Showman style, is it not? Like, they just, they're just they just mean fucking Muay Thai strikers. They want to stay in your face. They don't want to give you the space to work um, and, and just keep you kind of like overcrowd your 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 system and just not uh just always have you thinking about something rather than okay i can finally get my strikes off before you even finish that thought they're gonna have a jab in your face or they're gonna keep uh or a leg kick or whatever the hell it might be that's shane burgos's style that's how i think he ends up winning this fight i think this fight collects some rounds over two and a half minus 175 a little bit too chalky considering we have some 
power punches here in Burgos and Barboza, but uh, Burgos by decision is where I'm settling on, and that is currently at plus 175. Burgos by TKO, my, uh, plus 380, not too shabby either, but I think the most likely outcome is Burgos by decision here by just putting a little bit of a clinic on Barboza over 15 minutes. How do you feel about this one? Yeah, I think that's the, the where I'd go as well. But on a bet perspective, like a prop side of things, yeah, I don't think that there's any one that I really like. The fight goes the distance props are way too juiced considering yeah. Burgos is a little bit chinny. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. You look at the Josh Emmett fight, yeah, dude, Josh Emmett's got nukes in his hands. I mean, talk to Jeremy Stevens about that one. This guy touches you uh in the right spot, you are getting completely KO'd. And the, he takes his two best punches. He gets dropped, he gets back up, and he fights on. But you got to admit, he gets hit and he gets floored out. It's beyond that. It's the, not even the Calvin Cater fight, where again, he's arguably up the first two rounds and the third round he gets boxed up by Calvin Cater. It's that Kurt Holub fight where he gets dropped by a stiff jab and he's off his back and then he ends up just submitting a Kurt Holub with an armbar. But it's like, I, he's only 29 years old. He's still relatively young. He still hasn't taken a whole lot of damage, but the way he fights, it's like, you know, he is there to get dropped, and it is a bit of a problem. When you look at all the other guys from Tiger Shulman that have come out of the gym, you know, they're all very tight technical strikers. Uh, Jimmy Rivera, Uriah Hall, um, even Mike Trezano pulling off the upset. Julio Arce, yeah, it's like these these guys keep it tight. These guys keep it very controlled. Burgos is a little bit different. Burgos wants to fight you. Burgos wants to stand in the middle of the cage and engage in a war. The way he fought Cub Swanson was not the way to fight Cub Swanson, but he gets a victory out of it, and it's entertaining, and it's a fight of the night contender. And the way he goes and he fights Josh Emmett, it's the same thing. It's like an ego. Like he's got something to prove. When you're standing in front of guys like Calvin Cater and Josh Emmett, and to a lesser extent, Cub Swanson, these guys hit you. They're going to do a lot of damage. And so my problem is if he has an ego, and a chip on his shoulder, lost his last fight, wants to come out here and put on a show. Edson's not the guy, my man. You don't want to stand in front of this guy. Because again, when Dan Hooker gives him that space, doesn't pressure him off the get-go, you become a punching bag. Once you're a punching bag with Edson Barbosa, he's going to tee off on you. But I agree with Barbosa, you know, dropping down to 145 pounds. He's 35 years old. He's a one in one mixed results. A lot of people want to scream robbery in the Dan Ige fight, but it's the same way how did Jorge Masvidal lose to Ally Quinto once upon a time. The first round, you drop him. The first round, you hurt him. The first round, you look good. The second and the third round, you coast, and you took it off, and he ever so slightly outworked you. I had Barbosa bet that night. I'm not ashamed to admit I thought Danny did enough to win the fight. When it was going to the scorecards, I thought I was going to get screwed. I did. Twitter was all like, man, we got robbed, but we didn't. We didn't. Barbosa took his foot off the gas. Now the Makwan Americani fight. <laughs> I'm all in on Barbosa, right? How's he going to lose a fight to Macron Americani? Close, though. Fuck, man. It was way <laughs> too close. He gives up three takedowns. When he was standing, he wasn't engaging. He wasn't letting his hands go. He was worried about getting taken down. Now, he drops Macron Americani. He hurts Macron Americani. But Americani, one, not a striker. Can't take the shots. And two, has a big-time suspect gas tank. Very one-dimensional. You know what he's going to do. He's going to try to wrestle you, and he's going to get tired. That, that I could understand. Burgos, Burgos would get floored by Josh Emmett and pop up and still and still come right back at him. It's impressive stuff. When you look at strictly by the numbers with Shane Burgos, um, that, that last fight of his uh, with Josh Emmett, sorry. The first round, he, out, he outstrikes Josh Emmett 46 to 36, right? Second round, he outstrikes him 48 to 40. And then the third round, he gets dropped. He's, he's down 51 to 34. Over the whole course of the fight, 128 significant strikes landed. Getting hit, getting hurt, coming back after you. The same thing with the Cub fight. Got hit, got hurt, came back after him. He does that with Barbosa. You nailed it. We've seen Barbosa fight so many times. There's two passive victories against this guy. You can take him down and wrestle fuck him, which is what you probably want to do. 
but not everybody's able to take that. You're not Khabib, you're not Kevin Lee, you're not those guys. Okay, path B, push him off his back foot. You got to move backwards on him. Do not let him pressure you. That's where he fights off his best. You need to move him backwards. His career is starting to really image, uh, like mirror image his training partner, Marlon Moraes. They're both at uh, they're both at um, the Armory in Juniper, Florida. They both leave and they both go to Mark Henry in New York. They both have the best fights of their career with Mark Henry in New York. They both decide to leave a little bit later in life, a little bit later in their careers, I should say, not life. Life goes on for hopefully many, many more years for these two individuals. They're still very young, but in the career game. And they, they go back to Florida and they dabble with ATT and a little bit in South Florida as well. And it's just like you're trying to recapture magic that's not quite there. But I'm not I'm not going to discredit him. I'm not going to disrespect him. I think he could most definitely knock out Shane Burgos. But I think that Shane Burgos is able to withstand that early punishment and put it on him. So the play would be the Burgos by decision. I'm going to agree with you there. But I really think, look at this one from a live betting standpoint. I think that uh, Barbosa wins the first round. At the very least, Barbosa is very competitive in the first round. And if, if Shane can get out of it, and you, you get the impression that he's starting to turn up the heat a little bit. He's not hurt. He's not tired. He's moving it on. I think that's when it would be a good time to hit this line. The the interesting thing about this, we have the under two and a half at plus 155. And given that these guys are two big, heavy strikers, it almost seems like uh, too good to be true, right? But ultimately, it could end up being that trap line. Even the ferguson Darius fight that we're going to talk about later, plus 160 for the under two and a half, considering those guys are absolute madmen. Even earlier in the card, right? Tucker Lutz and uh, Kevin Aguilar, you got the under two and a half, and they're at plus 175. There's a ton of spots on this card that seem almost like trap lines, considering that both guys are strikers. They throw big heat. Sometimes they enjoy the chaos uh but yeah this one i do expect to see to go to a decision but i would not be surprised at all if somebody ends up getting the knockout here all right let's move on to the next fight here we got catlin chukagin versus viviani araujo we got uh, chukagin minus 135 plus 115 for viviani araujo uh i like chukagin here uh you know just as much as i like Bar burgos to be honest i think she can uh, implement a solid game plan that uh will kind of stifle the game of, game of araujo now i'd like to compare Ch chukagin slightly to neil magni and the aspect that they don't have anything that really flies off the sheets in terms of when you're talking about their skill sets or anything like that, but they're able to implement a certain game plan that kind of stifles their opponents and, and you know, they, they might fight close to their level of their competition, but they still come out with their hand raised at the end of the day. With Chukagin here, we know what the game plan is, right? Stay on the outside, pitter-patter from the outside, end off with leg kicks, stay on your bicycle, don't be there to be hit, and I think she can be very successful. And that's where I found why Jessica I was successful against Viviane Arujo, the only time Arujo has actually lost inside the UFC is that Jessica I was the one going first she was the one kind of like overloading the systems of Arujo and Arujo was more so like more thinking than she was actually reacting and actually throwing her combinations and I think that's exactly what we're going to get here from Gatlin is just pick her apart from the outside she's going to have a five inch height advantage the reach is pretty much the same here but I think the height will obviously be a big deterrent in terms of Vivian Arujo landing big enough shots and I think that we'll see Chukagian just pick her apart from the outside and not be there to be hit I think we're going to see Arujo pretty much swinging at air for the majority of this fight and that's going to start to gas her. I do believe that she still has a gas tank issue. Some people believe that she's managed to shore those up, but I still see her you know, huffing and puffing a little bit in that third round and when she's swinging at air and trying to track down Catelyn Chukagin, I think it's only going to stress her out more. It's only going to gas her out more and I'm not saying that Chukagin is going to finish her in the third round here, but I think that the longer this fight goes, the easier it is for Chukagin to implement her style and I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I like Chukagin by decision at minus 105. I I think she goes out there and just pitter-patters her from the outside. Um, and again, be first. That's the main thing. Don't let Arujo get comfortable and just get your game going. The last thing I'll say about that, if you watch the Montana De La Rosa fight, like the second and third rounds, you see... Um, 
you see when Delarosa when she's first, you kind of see like a bewildered look on Arujo's face because like she's like I'm usually the one go- that goes first, but Delarosa's hitting me now. The only difference between Delarosa and Trukagian though is that Delarosa just stayed there. She didn't move. She didn't really get out of the pocket. She was there to be hit. Whereas Trukagian, we know she's going to be on her bicycle. We got the slightly bigger cage here being in Houston on a pay per view. I-, I think that we see Trukagian successfully on her bicycle go out there and uh, pitter patter her and-, and win a decision here. So I like minus one hundred five for the decision line on Aru- or on uh, Chukagian. And uh, yeah, the over two and a half is minus 440. That's fucking juice to shit at this point in time. But if you want to look at it at the other side and you think that Rujo can land the bigger shots and she's going to have more of a, a sway towards the judges, plus 200-ish on her decision line is not too bad. But I think that Jukagian is much more likely to, uh, to, to fight to her strengths, which is just a point. Stick and move, stick and move, stick and move. Let Viviani uh, whiff at air and then start to stress her out that way and start to gas her out as well. So I got you, Kagan, minus 105 on a, on a fight card with very close fights throughout. For some reason, I feel very strongly about you, Kagan, here. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I'm actually going to agree with you. I think that Caitlin Kagan gets the job done. But again, I just think there's not a whole lot of confidence there in that it should be a relatively close fight. Uh, this is another fight I really think you look at the live betting opportunity here. With Viviana Arroyo, she is a first-round wrecking machine. Looks like a world champion. And to that extent, she's never lost her first round in the UFC. Toledo Bernardo, she wins it. Alexis Davis, she wins it. Jessica Eifight, her only loss in the UFC. In fact, her only loss, not in her pro career, but yeah, it was in the UFC. She wins the first round against Jessica I. Second and third round, she tires out. Montana De La Rosa, Roxanne Mountfairy, all the same thing. Well, people think that this this cardio issue comes into play is that she gassed out against Alexis Davis, Jessica I, Montana De La Rosa, looked better against Montefiore, but the longer that you can push a pace on her, the longer you can stuff some of these takedowns and make her work, she starts to get tired. Everything she does is very strong. The striking, very strong. The leg kicks, big, heavy, thudding, you know, lets her hands go. Good power. You know, she, you can tell that she's putting a lot of effort in each of her strikes. And the wrestling is the same thing, you know. She's not really the most technical, savvy wrestler, but she's strong. She's a brute. She's able to power you to the ground. It's using that much strength and physicality in all your techniques. That's what's going to tire you out. Now, she seems like she's a young prospect, you know. She's just been fighting in the UFC for a handful of years now. And she's just got the one loss to I, and maybe she can build into something. But she is 34 years old. So... I don't know how much she's going to make these drastic improvements to her cardio, how much she's going to drastically improve the gas tank. And that's something she's going to need on elite level going forward. Now, with Caitlin Chikagian, she's just so well-rounded. You know, BJJ Brown Belt, very good striking, great output, good cardio, fought the who's who of the division. And you really see that she's making a lot of these improvements, even as she's get, entering this stage of her career. The wrestling, she's really been adding into it. You know, the grappling and all these 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 different fine points of it. And so the reason why I like Caitlin Chikagian is I think that she's got the work rate, She's got the better striking. Her takedown defense is going to be good enough to stop Vivi and keep the fight standing. Keep the fight standing. She's going to have the work rate, the output, the speed, use the bigger cage, stay to the outside, and just work her over. But the reason I like this from a live betting opportunity is, again, Vivi's never lost her first round. And Caitlin's in a lot of these close-ish rounds. She just... She doesn't ever really do that much to overwhelm you. This is not a girl that's probably ever going to score a 10-8 round, right? She just does enough to ever so slightly get that nod. So I think Vivi either wins the first round or it's very close. And then you should be able to get a plus money play on Caitlin Jukagian after that first round. And I really do think that cardio and volume and pace output will all be the deciding factor. So I got Caitlin Jukagian. The official prop would be that Jukagian by decision.
Same I thing. Like it. Yeah. I like it. I like when you back up uh, spots that I feel quite confident. Not saying that I'm going out there and betting uh, Chukagi not like my lock of the night or anything like that, but in terms of a, a fight card that's very closely lined throughout, this is one of the ones that I feel quite strongly about. All right, let's move on to uh, the third fight on the main card here. Again, weird weird positioning in terms of where they put the fight, but match now against Hajiri Bonturin. Again, another kind of closely lined fight, minus 160 on Chanel, plus 140 on uh, Bonturin. Having a hard time kind of de- uh, dissecting this fight, but I still come out on the other end at all times picking Chanel to win this fight by decision. I think he has a slicker hands, just as he showed in the Tyson Nam fight. And uh, ultimately, the blame is on myself. But I slightly blame you and other outside noise, which eventually made me switch my pick from Chanel to Nam last time around. And we got Nam fucking not able to, to put him away. Nam, <clears throat> to his credit, he was landing some good shots on Chanel. Chanel's chin was just there. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was not as bad as we expected it to be, considering how he's been put out in his last fights. And again, the ultimate blame comes down to me, but I felt like the way that I broke down the fight the first time, it pretty much went to a T that way. You know what I mean? Chanel has great movement. He has great boxing. I think he his hand speed is absolutely one of his best traits about him, which is why I think he's going to be able to go out there and do the same thing to Bontarine. But if Bontarine somehow either pulls guard or jumps on the back of him or or clinches up with him and starts to initiate a grappling sequence, I think it gets a little bit hairy for Schnell. I'm not sure if he'll be able to t- submit Schnell. I do believe that Bontarine is a high-level BJJ black belt, but I think that Schnell is well-versed enough in the jiu-jitsu realm to at least be able to survive. Does he end up losing the round? More than likely, yeah. But for some reason, when I play this fight over and over in my head, I see Chanel being more successful with his hands, landing more damage, potentially getting a knockout, right? Like that Kaikar France knockout for Bontarine last time around did not look that good. Have you ever seen a, a guy fall that way before where it's like not even face first, head first, and it looked like he was trying to like stretch his neck out or something? But a uh, bad way for him to face plant or head plant, I should say. <clears throat> to to lose that fight against Kai Car France, but uh, yeah, I think that Chanel is just technically much more savvy on the feet. Uh, his, his honestly, his striking is a, a treat to watch. I love watching the guy operate the, the way he's so fast with his hands and great combinations. Obviously, finishing with kicks every now and then, but his boxing is definitely his bread and butter. And I think as long as he stays away from the takedowns and the grappling of Bontarine, he should go out there and have some success. I just want to distance Matt Schnell a little bit more from his knockout losses before I go out there and continue to trust him even more because Bontarine still does have some power in his hands. I'll give him that. Technically, not the better striker, but that doesn't matter in MMA if you can land the bigger, better strike at the perfect timing. And uh, that is definitely a worry on my mind as to why I'm probably not running to the betting window to bet Matt Schnell here, especially at the chalk that he's at. But I do think that Schnell still ends up winning this fight. I see a lot of people on the under two and a half, and I kind of understand that angle. Ultimately, though, I'll go with Schnell to win by decision here. Uh, which is currently sitting at plus 177. That's the spot that I like the most, and that's how I feel. How are you feeling? Does, do you think Bontrine is more live than the line actually indicates? Yeah, I think he's live. I think he's live for sure. The one thing that would cause like the cause for concern that, that I don't want to like lock it in and, and seal into play is that you got Matt Schnell that was preparing to take on Alex Perez, who is a gangster, a yeah. badass, right? You go to full camp for a huge opportunity, one of the biggest spots of your career. You're 31. You're at Fortis MMA now. You've been you look good in your last fight under Fortis. It was his first fight there. A lot to like. This is a good spot. So so falling up an opponent of that magnitude, and Alex Perez falling out. You get a replacement opponent in Rogerio Bonterin. Still a dangerous matchup. This is where I get the cause for concern. Bonterin career 125. He fights at 125 pounds. He has tough weight cuts. But that's part part of what makes him effective at 125 is, <laughs> dude is strong at 125. Now, Chanel fights at 125 too, but he has fought at 135. He's a little bit of a bigger body as a bantamweight. 
So Bontra is taking this fight on short notice. They've moved it up to 135 pounds. I, I don't know if that affects him. I don't know if that makes his cardio better. I don't know if that makes it worse because now it's like you got to deal with wrestling around with bigger guys. You saw Luke Sanders. Mind you, Luke Sanders is just known for fucking it up. But uh, his last fight was at 145, right? Should that not have helped his cardio? Should that not have... No, no, no. Completely zapped out four minutes into the first round because now you're actually dealing with a slightly bigger opponent who's also rehydrated. You're moving around more weight in the octagon. With Bonterin, the Kaikara France fight, he takes him down in the first round. He looks great in the first round. And then when it gets stood back up, which, bullshit stand-up, but when it gets yeah. stood back up, he, he's tired, man. He's gassed. And this is early in the first round. Now he gets knocked out. He claims he wasn't knocked out, but I was like, I don't know. He was out. He did, was did, out, brother. Did you watch the same thing? And I was just looking at it. Check the replay, um, my guy. Yeah, he's just like, what are you talking about? Like, he wanted to continue. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know, dude. Um, but still, it was like, he, he was gassed out in that spot. And so here's a guy that is very physical and very aggressive. And I think he puts a lot on his opponents early. You go back and you even watch his fight with Roly on Pava, in which he wins with the cut stoppage. The first minute or two, he's putting it on Pava. He hits him, he hurts him. It doesn't hurt him, but he cuts him open with the cut. He gets a take down out of it and then Pava stands up and starts beating the shit out of Monterine and then the ref stops it for a second sees the cut and calls it off so there's another spot where Monterine's cardio didn't look like it was going to hold up he just seems to put too much emphasis on that early aggression take the back search for the choke go 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 Kaikara France man you got to admit dude some of those rear naked chokes were in Great they game. were locked in, and it's like he just he just hand fought the entire time, stayed stayed safe, and as a result, when Bontrin stood back up, he, he was gas. His arms were gas. He went too hard in the paint for it. <clears throat> this is, and I'm going to say, another great live betting opportunity because Schnell's not winning this first round. Bontrin's going to go in there. Bontrin's going to club him with an overhand right. He's going to immediately use it to shoot himself into a double leg. Either he gets him up against the cage and just slams him, or he's just going to peel him off the cage and settle in with the takedown. That first round, Bontarine on top of you is going to be a problem. They're both black belts. Chanel's not going to be a fish out of water. Chanel's going to defend everything. But Bontarine's going to hold down top position and win this first round. It's that second and third round where Bontarine's going to get tired. And if Bontarine bails on a couple of these takedown attempts, Chanel should outwork him. Like you said, he's got the better boxing. He's got the better range, better reach, uh, throws in combinations, tighter, crisper, more linear. They should be able to beat him with a punch. But he's got a better gas tank. And you just got to chip away at this guy and take him into those deeper waters. But as far as like... Uh, straight up gun to my head like i, I kind of got this feeling that bontrian is successful with those takedowns is able to just hold down top position and is able to turn this into a jiu-jitsu match nullify him take it into some deeper waters win this fight the bontrian by decision line is uh plus 380 Ooh. but again this this is a volatile fight that the under two and a half like you said also does make a lot of sense bontrian's going to take him down he's going to try to fish for the rear naked choke and he's either going to get it and it's going to be an under two and a half or he's not going to get it and Matt Chanel is going to take over in that later part portion and put him away um but again i just think he's too physically strong for Chanel. is jiu-jitsu if this is going to be a grappling match i want the guy that's going to be on top the one thing i can't bank on is because he's short notice and up a weight class i just don't know if he's going to have the gas in the tank so i want to see weigh-ins and and even then i'm, I'm still going to be on the fence, you know, competitive fight, close fight. That's the theme of the card. I uh, I just think that there's slight spots that make more sense to me. But in terms of some of these, Bontering by decision plus 380. Jacare by decision was plus 300. Uh, Grundy by decision plus 205. Like, <clears throat> I know their decision plot. Giago's by sub 575. Like, there's a couple of these three, four, five to one prop plays. It's like, are they lower percentage? Yeah, but like I, I, I could see a scenario that exists where that's exactly what happens is that 
Bontrian needs these takedowns and just like the Babulatov fight he's not it's not like he can't go the distance it's just that you you got to match him keep it close and hopefully he squeaks one out so reluctantly I'm going to go with another dog play here I'm going to take Rogerio Bontrian but come weigh-ins man come weigh-ins it could be a big deciding factor like to me that's a big thing that's the real head scratcher that's the red flag I can't quite figure out because I, I don't know is is the short notice opportunity good or bad for him I'm just I'm not 100% set on it yeah, I like the fact that you're harping on the weight class for this thing too, because that's a, definitely uh, a factor in this fight. And not to mention, Matt Schnott has had his own battles with the scales and trying to make the weight himself. So I'm sure he's happy to make this fight at 135 pounds as well. And I can't wait to see how both guys look tomorrow morning once they actually hit the scales. All right, let's move on to the Coleman event here. Absolute chaos incoming. We got Tony Ferguson going up against Benio Dariush. And it seems like everybody and their mother is writing off Tony Ferguson. And I can't say that I blame them, but I want to tell them to tread lightly here. So got minus 175 on Benio Darius, plus 155 on Tony Ferguson. And it's tough, right? If there's anybody that can come back from eight rounds of adversity the way that Tony Ferguson dealt with against Justin Gaethje and obviously Charles Oliveira last time around, it's a guy like Tony Ferguson, right? That guy's absolutely mad, crazy in the head, and you know he's uh, like fully obsessed with this shit. And I feel like he's going to try to make the changes that's required to go out there and win this fight. However... When you see Benio Darius win the fight that he did last time around against Carlos Diego Ferreira, it's hard not to believe that he's going to be able to do the same thing here against Tony Ferguson, who seems to have absolutely no takedown defense, right? Charles Oliveira was able to just pick him up, scoop him up, and just put him down, and then just get into his full guard and pretty much just, uh, you know, grind him out from there. Obviously, he was having some success on the feet too, but with Benio Darius, I think he's going to have to put his wrestling singlet on, get this fight to the ground, and obviously his jiu-jitsu is good enough to hang with Tony Ferguson, uh, and I think he could control him down there. Can he find a submission? Possibly, but I think that uh, his best path to victory would just be Play as disciplined as possible. Know that this is the biggest shot in your life, especially going up against the highest ranked opponent you've ever fought. And this is your opportunity to get a, a title shot or at least a number one contender shot in your next fight. So don't go into stupid Benny mode where you just fucking trade in the fire like the Jakar Close fight and the Scott Holtzman fight. And even though those fights played out in your favor, it's just a matter of time until it doesn't. And you don't want to be trading in the fire and in the chaos against the king of chaos, in my opinion, uh, Tony Ferguson. I'm not writing off Ferguson as much as most people are. Again, I've had numerous people hit me up in my DMs, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, comment section, all that type of stuff. If you don't make Benio Dere, you should lock in the night play. You should retire that name. Chill the fuck out, guys. Chill the fuck out because I don't believe it's that big or that easy of a fight for him. I think it's still going to be tough. Tony Ferguson has always been at a disadvantage pretty much in all of his fights. You can easily make a case for all of his past opponents that he's beaten but he still thrives through that shit and still comes out with, on the winning end because he creates chaos. Like him, Brandon Royval, and Yuri Prohaska, I believe are pretty much all the same fighters just at different weight classes because they just bring chaos. They just bring this complete uncertainty that their opponents really can't really prepare for and then either they get sucked into it or you get the Justin Gaethje performance where he just puts together his hands so well that Ferguson can't do anything about it or Charles Oliveira just wraps him up like a fucking present and just lays on him for 15 minutes almost right so i can see benil taking the charles route in this fight taking the fight to the ground try to play as safe as possible try to nullify what's coming back his way uh from the jiu-jitsu run from ferguson uh but if he decides to try to trade it in the pocket a little bit too much things could get hairy man darius's chin is just waiting to get cracked at this point it's been cracked so many times he's been on wobbly legs so many times that i think it could be an issue and the last thing i'll still say 
I've harped on it a little bit. I think that Darius does have a little bit of cardio issues. Uh, he does start to slow down later in fights, and we know Tony Ferguson can go fucking 25 rounds if he needs to. If Darius shows a little bit of of a, a loss in his step in that third round, I think things could get very, very bad for him, especially if he's not able to complete takedowns or hold Tony Ferguson down. I think he's going to be in for some shit. Ultimately, though, I'll go with Darius. I think he's going to win this fight by decision. It's just that wrestling and that top pressure and his level of jujitsu that I think is going to be too much for Tony Ferguson in this spot. Uh, so Darius by decision plus 150. I don't mind it. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if we see those Tony Ferguson elbows from the bottom, cut him up and do some crazy shit. Like it, you can't count out Tony Ferguson as much as people are, are counting him out. I like Darius to win this fight, but I'm putting my money nowhere near this fight. I just want to sit back and watch it as a fan. Are you writing off Ferguson as much as everybody else is? How are you seeing this fight go down, brother? Yeah, well, see, I didn't write Donald Cerrone off as much as I should have, and that really <laughs> burned me last weekend. So, yeah, no, going into this one, it kind of you kind of get a similar impression with Tony Ferguson. It's that his best days seem to be behind him. He's 37 years old. Um, but I don't know. Like, I got this thing where a lot of the times when I'm retaping, it's like, well, how meaningful is it now, right? Like, if, if I said, well, this dude submitted Matt Hughes, they'd be like, well, what does that do for you now, right? Yeah. That's the same thing. It's like the game passes you by. And we talked about Jacques earlier. It's like his his time frame of who the best guys around his, the Luke Rockholds and the Yoel Romero's and the Chris Wybins, like, all these guys are off the map. It's the same thing. It's like that that's where it's headed. With Tony Ferguson, when you look at this crazy run, eight fight winning streak he's the best in the world people are clamoring for him to fight Khabib and a lot of people are betting him to beat Khabib when you look at that run right he flat out robs Danny Castillo it's a split decision win but it's hilarious. like dude the biggest robbery he spent the entire fight off his back and even Joe was like well you know he was going for submissions it's like fuck off dude he's Eddie Bravo guys the only reason you just said that yeah. uh but anyways you probably should have lost that one Abe Trujillo drops him and wins the first round, but Tony comes back and wins, right? Edson Barbosa stings him bad, wins the first round, Tony comes back and wins. Lando Venata drops him twice, wins the first round, he comes back and he beats him. Kevin Lee, who had a staph infection, by the way, takes him down in the first round, mounts him, beating on him in the first round. Tony loses the first round, Kevin got a staph infection, so he, how's that going to work out for you? He gets really tired, clearly. T Tony, Tony comes back. Anthony Pettis drops him, beats him up in the first round. Tony comes back. Donald Cerrone competitive in the first round, I suppose. What I'm getting at is, one, he's squeaked by a lot of those fights. He almost always universally loses the first round. He's a slow starter. He gets dropped all the time. doesn't have a bad chin. But, I mean, does get hurt often enough. But it's like, what got me is Donald Cerrone, right? This is his last win. Donald Cerrone. I mean, it's, it's the farewell tour for him. He's just about done. Everyone's acknowledged that now. How meaningful is it? Doesn't matter. Anthony Pettis, no longer with the UFC, fighting in PFL. In fact, lost to Clay Collard as a 6-1 favorite in his last outing. Kevin Lee, that's a nice little win. Kevin Lee did have a staph infection in that fight, did win the first round, and then his body starts to shut down on him. Also, Kevin Lee, that's a big weight cut for him to 55, man. Like, yeah. you know, again, I hate to make excuses for him because it's a nice win. Win over Kevin Lee, that's that's holds up in 2021. Rafael de Sanos, tail end. Lando Venata, you know, clinging to a job here. Uh, it's in Barbosa. He's down at 45 now. And, and again, you know, searching for something that might not be there. Josh Thompson, commentator for Bellator. Gleison Tebow losing in PFL. Abitra Hio. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that one. No, 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 no. <laughs> 
Danny Castillo, he's long time retired. He's an alpha male wrestling coach now. It's like so that long win streak. It's it's really not as pretty as you remember it being. It was exciting. Holy shit, was it ever exciting? But it's like in 2021, I don't know where it gets you. And so that's when he runs into Justin Gaethje. Myself included, I'm on Team Ferguson in that fight because Ferguson creates the chaos. He creates the fire. He takes these guys into deeper waters. And really, the only guys that had beaten Justin Gaethje at the time, Eddie Alvarez, Dustin Poirier. They took everything he gave. They gave it right back. They broke him late in the third round, both of them. That's what I kind of thought here. Tony was going to take it. Five rounds. He was going to dish it right back. He was going to slowly pull ahead. His cardio second to none. He's never been tired before. And it's like he just stood there. He just stood there, got teed off on. He, he His striking looked abysmal. He's got Eddie Bravo calling for an Imanari role between rounds. Like, it was a bad game plan. And I don't know. It just seemed like something was missing out of him. So now he gets Charles Oliver. Okay, no problem. Tony Ferguson, he wrestled collegiately. Sure, he's been taken down by eight different opponents in the UFC, but the guy knows how to wrestle, and he's a BJJ black belt. He can scramble off his ground, and oh, the striking, second to none. Well, like Charles made him look amateurish. It's my my problem is that it's his. He's not accepting it. He's always got some shit excuse. Like you know, you go back to the Oliveira fights. I barely even trained jiu-jitsu for that fight. Yeah, that it's was like, well, why? That was you're fighting Charles Oliveira, and you're not grappling every single day, like. What are you talking about? You know, it's a, it's a knee injury. It's an ankle injury. It's a, it's, yeah, this, it's, well, I ran across a freeway with my newborn child and hopped over a fence. CIA, they're after me, man. It's always fucking something. And so then him going on social media and being like, Khabib, you're not undefeated because you dodged me. It's like, dog, I don't know what you're looking at, but you're on a two-fight losing streak. You've lost every single round, those two fights. You haven't looked relatively all that competitive. You're 37, and I seen your takedown defense against Charles Oliveira. You want no part of Khabib, my friend. But it's like, it's like at first it was like, oh, it's confidence. He's confident himself, and as a prize fighter, you have to be confident. So, but now it's like, it's like borderlines, like delusion. You know, like I don't know what he's thinking. Can he win this fight? He's got the skills to win this fight. But Benil's got to do exactly what he did against Diego Ferreira, Carlos Diego Ferreira. Get those takedowns. Ride that top control. The blueprint's been written here. Listen, we, we just saw what Gaethje did to him, and that's just be the better technical striker. You could stand in with him. You could strike with him. And I do expect Benil to stand with him for pockets of time. But the more effective game plan is exactly what Charles did, which is I don't have to do anything but just take him down, secure top control. It's very difficult to submit an elite-level comp- competitor in this day and age, a high-level black belt, a top-five guy in the division. It's very hard to submit these guys off your back. You don't want to play in this guard game. Tony's takedown defense this is actually interesting, right? As I mentioned, he'd been taken down by like eight different opponents in the UFC, but he's given up takedowns to... Guys, you wouldn't even expect. Danny Castillo, sure. Abel Trujillo, twice. Uh, Josh Thompson took him down. Edson Barboso took him down twice. Kevin Lee with the three takedowns. Donald Cerrone got him down. Car- Charles Oliveira took him down three times. It's like the takedown should be there for Benil. Cardio, huge advantage for Tony. But if Tony's not standing, putting pressure on this guy. And last but not least, Tony, this is, this is the last point I want to make here. Tony's KO ability, it's volume. Benil usually gets caught by a stinger. You know, Anthony Hernandez caught him with one he did not see coming. Drew Dober caught him with a clean one that was just like, man, he's putting it on him. Even the Jakar close fights, like, damn, that one that one stung him. And he perseveres a lot of the time, right? He comes through it a lot of the time. When you look at Tony, Donald Cerrone blew his nose, eye swelled up. Doctor stops it. Not a KO. Doctor stops it. Pettis breaks his hand. Duke's like, no moss, kid. Duke stops it. Technically, doctor stops it. Duke stops it. 
His last knockout before that is Katsunori Kakuno, which was a hell of a knockout, bro. That That's a spectacular knockout. But again, it's like 2016, 2015, five, six years yeah. ago. Five, six years ago since the last time he knocked a guy out. So Benil is chinny, but Tony, and we've seen him through all the wins, lose the first round, out-volume you in the second, take you out in the second, maybe in the third, but pr- generally speaking, his history suggests the second, is is overwhelm you. So I think Benil wins the first round. I think if you want to bet Tony, you would live bet Tony and get an even better plus money tag. I know we've talked about that on a couple spots in this card, but he's a slow starter. But in my mind, Benil does that the first round, and then Benil just does it for one more round. Get those takedowns, hold them down. Tony's just a different guy, man. He talks such a good game that it's like you, it's, you believe in him. You get behind him. He's got one more. He's got one more. But it does seem a little bit checked out. And whereas a lot of people are making the arguments like, dude, he fought Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje. Give him a pass. I'm trying to tell myself that was the argument I had with Donald Cerrone last week. Dude dude fought all the best guys. You know, dude fought Tony Ferguson. Dude fought Conor McGregor. Dude fought literally the best guys in the, in the world that were available to him. Yeah, you lose to those guys. But it's like there's a certain point where you get into your career where it's like you lose to those guys and you lose to an entire crop of mid-range guys. And Benil Darius not mid-range. He's upper mid-range. I think he'll have enough to go out there and, and pull it off. But, fuck, man, this is... Uh, I only marked, like, two no-bets on this entire card, and this is one that I want to make the no-bet on. I got Darius by decision, plus 150. The fight goes the distance, minus 155. I just know it's going to be a sweat, and it's going to be a nail-bite the entire time. Um, it could be fight of the night. It's going to be super entertaining. I cannot wait for it. But I think if I want to get back on track, I mean, again, the props were good last week, so I'm not I'm not disappointed in the losses there. If I'm if I'm trying to be safe, like you said, parlay is not the way to go this week. If I want to be safe, if I want to be smart, is going against Tony Ferguson the way to do it? Like the dude's hell on wheels. The dude's a wrecking ball. The dude is batshit crazy. But like, if he shows up, like there is something there still. The pick, the pick is going to be Benil. I just, you know, I, I'm. It's not a, for me. You, your fans are telling you it's a lock of the night. Like I don't know that I agree with that assessment, but I do agree that I would also take Benil, just like it sounds like they're doing. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be a sweat and a half, and I don't want to be any part of that shit. Fuck that. All right, let's go to the main event here. We got Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. They are fighting for the vacant lightweight strap that uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov actually just left for these guys. Uh, So they're pretty much playing second fiddle here. We know just like light heavyweight, John Jones is a champion over there. Khabib is a champion here. He is uh, retired, but something that we definitely need to acknowledge. So Michael Chandler... Talk about a, a, a debut, right? Goes out there and knocks out Dan Hooker. Pretty much sets himself up for, for a title shot. Let's be honest. Realistically, it should be Dustin Poirier versus Charles Oliveira. That's what actually should be happening. Dustin Poirier wants no part of the belt. He just wants that Connor fight. He wants to get that payday. All props to him. We know what his motive is. It's money at the end of the day. And how can you blame him, right? Considering the amount of uh, miles and years that he's putting. Go ahead, Cody. Yeah, does that make sense, though? Just be- The only reason I say that is you fought Connor, you beat Connor, and now you're getting a career-high payday, right? But 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, you want to talk about legacy? What's a bigger legacy, that you fought Connor again or that you were a world champion? I just feel like in the long... Right now, the short-sighted paycheck... Is the McGregor paycheck for sure. For sure. But like, don't you want to be... Everybody, you worked with a lot of fighters, man. You and I have been, you know, we've matchmade cards. You ran a gym. We've seen UFC veterans come and go. We've gone to all the seminars. One thing universally between all of these guys that I've recognized as like a characteristic between almost all fighters is in their mind, all of them want the title. 
There's, there's, yeah. there's so very few guys that are like, I'm looking for good fights. Even fucking Cerrone, that last one, they were like, yeah. oh, take it on Maroney. He's like, well, you know, after this, I'm going back down to 55, giving one more title shot. It's like, what? But it's like, even a guy that's 50 fights into his career, who's, you know, got 30 fights in the UFC, who's got all these bonuses, who's got money, it's like, that's what's in the back of their head. I always bring up Phil Baroni. Phil Baroni's 15 and 19. And it's like, it's a sickness. It's a sickness in his head that he's just like, I can't stop until I get a world title. Now, some guys want a Strikeforce title. Some guys want a WBC world title. Oh, being a world champion is why you got in this game. Nobody comes in this game to take a beating. Nobody comes in this game to play second fiddle. They're all pursuing their goals and their ambitions. And even the guys that might not believe in themselves, right? You see Matt Sarah on, on the poster behind me? They all believe if I just had the chance, I might land that punch. All of them. You can take the number 50th guy in the world and be like, would you take a fight with... Uh, Whatever champion, doesn't matter. Israel Adesanya, Jan Blachowicz, uh, Francis Ngannou. It'd be like, yeah, I got a punch chance. I can land a shot. What's the worst that can happen? I lose? Eh, I could win. They all believe that you can win. You need that mentality of it's like, I can go out there and win. So with Dustin Poirier, it's like, would you not want to win the championship? Instead, it's like you're going to fight Connor. That's going to delay you another year of your career. Meanwhile, you got dudes like Oliveira and Chandler that are getting better and moving. Like, I don't know. I don't, I think it's, it was almost short-sighted for a money monetary gain. I agree the paycheck right now, fight Connor. But like, for the legacy, it's like you already fought Connor twice, man. Like, is, a, is, is the trilogy match bigger than being a world champion? I'm not so sure about that, but anyway, sorry I, to cut you off. No, no, I think he, again, I, I believe you're 100% right in terms of he is kind of short-sighted with that approach here. Uh, I think he's expecting to win that fight, and you, obviously coming off that second fight, you got to believe that he has the utmost confidence that would be able to do so, and then you got to believe that the title shot is waiting for him after that, so I don't, I don't mind this approach from him, get that money, and then eventually get the title shot right after that. I don't mind it. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot to risk, though. It, Bruce yeah. Buffer Bruce Buffer is always, for the rest of time, going to say, and in this corner, former UFC <laughs> lightweight, right? No one's going to be like, and in this corner, dude went 2-1 against Conor McGregor. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not an official title, man. I want titles. Yeah. I want accolades. Like, that's for why sure. they do it. So many dudes that fight were former college wrestlers, and then when you talk to them, they're all like, yeah, I got a chip on my shoulder. I, I didn't win a national title. Yeah. I wanted to win a national title. I wanted to be an All-American. I, it left a sour taste in my mouth. I pursued fighting because I want to win. I want to win. I want to be a victor, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, the fact that he stepped out, not a big deal. Because this is, this is uh, the next best fight they could put together. Absolutely. I'm more than happy about this fight. Again, it's going to be chaos. Imagine the co-main event and then going to this. Mr. Charlie Olives is always that guy that brings the fire, right? I believe like only three of his fights have gone uh, to a decision or, or at least over that two and a half round mark, which is why I pretty much am starting off this breakdown with that. The spot that I like the most is the under two and a half. I think that we're going to see much chaos pretty much from the, the first bell here. I do ever so slightly favor the Chandler side here. I do like him as a dog. I think he's going to be able to land the bigger shots on the feet. Um, you know, he mixes it up to the body pretty well and then obviously brings his uh, punches to the to the top. But he's like a wrestler striker, right? It's like those wide looping hooks, big shots. But he is fast. He is athletic. He is uh, explosive as well. And I think that might catch uh, Charlie uh, Charles Oliveira off guard. Charles Oliveira, as good of a, a Muay Thai striker, striker as he's become before our eyes the guy still doesn't really move his head off the center line i think that's asking for trouble especially with the big power puncher here against Char uh michael chandler uh if you're talking about winning minutes i think that charles Oliveira has all the tools in the world to beat michael chandler minute by minute in the striking realm considering he's a much more complete fighter with his kicks knees elbows and punches and all that stuff and then the jiu-jitsu realm you obviously give uh, charles Oliveira 
uh, the advantage in that fight. But just as you kind of nitpicked Tony Ferguson's run, I want to kind of nitpick Charles Oliveira's run, right? Let's be honest. Like it's a I little bit you. sketchy. It's I a little bit. You. It's a little bit shaky. Let's start it off. It's it's an eight fight winning streak that he's currently on, right? So Clay Guida, <laughs> Christos Yagos, <laughs> Jim Miller. Again, uh, already fought him before. Avengers is lost. Okay, I'll give him that. David Tamor. That one was impressive considering that he rocked him first on the feet, a spot that a lot of people David uh, thought David Tamor would have the advantage and rocks him in the feet and then follows up with an anaconda choke. But still, David Tamor. Uh, Nick Lentz. Why do we need to see him beat down Nick Lentz again after he's already on a four-fight winning streak? Why does that need to happen? Goes out there, uh, breaks Jared Gordon's orbital, if I'm not mistaken, with a jab and then finishes him a minute and a half into that fight. Then, then it gets a little bit harder, right? The Kevin Lee fight wins that fight, but the first two rounds were a little bit sketchy, right? That second round, especially when Kevin Lee was on top of him in half guard, you see Charles Oliveira look over at the referee like, hey, he's not doing anything. No, Charles, he was doing something. One, he's in dominant position at half guard. Two, he's actually staying active enough with his punches. So don't be looking up at the referee. Use this highly acclaimed Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt that you have to find yourself out of this position. But no, he couldn't. You saw Kevin Lee go out there and just kind of control him in that range. But luckily for Charles Oliveira, Kevin Lee is a notorious gasser. That guy has – I have better gas tank than that guy, right? Like he just put his his head into a choke of Charles Oliveira in that, at the beginning of that third round and just gave up that choke. And again, very good win for Charles Oliveira. But if you actually look at that fight, didn't really play out the best for him. Uh, and then the, the Tony Ferguson fight, I'll absolutely give him that fight. That one – blew my mind my lock of the night play that night was tony ferguson absolutely busted that ticket of mine my next one if i didn't pick tony ferguson was going to be the under two and a half there who the hell saw him go out there and control tony tony ferguson that way i just wasn't expecting that to happen now here with michael chandler i think he's going to struggle with getting chandler down i think he's going to struggle to get his jiu-jitsu game going the way he did against tony ferguson uh on the feet i think he's in trouble again i think he's gonna not gonna react well to that power once it starts to land on him um, those are my question marks about Charles Oliver. That's why I like Michael Chandler in this. Now, the question mark is they both have durability issues. Who's going to be the one that eats the canvas first? That's why I'd rather cover both sides with the under two and a half here because I expect it to be a high action pretty much from the get-go. I'd be very surprised if we see stalemate, uh, or stalemate scenarios like we saw in the Tony Ferguson fight. Like Tony had no idea what the fuck to do off of his back. Whereas if Charles Oliver gets... Chandler in those positions, I think he can threaten him a little bit more with submissions and actually get away with it. Now, Michael Chandler never been finished by submission. Uh, the best submission artist he's faced is probably Gaioti Yamauchi, uh, who he you know hung pretty well with on the ground, was able to stay out of submissions. And the other best guy was Sidney Outlaw, but that fight didn't even end up hitting the ground, and he knocks him out within, what, like two, two minutes or something like that? So... Ultimately, I'm going to go with Chandler. I'm going to go with Chandler to win it in the first round. Plus 450-ish, I think, is that line. I love that spot. I think Chandler lands that bomb on him earlier, puts him out. And I think it's going to be a little bit too much for Charles, man. I think Charles still has that quit in him. And even if this fight does go longer, if I if my under 2.5 bet crashes, I kind of trust Chandler the longer this fight goes. I think the longer it goes, I think Charles will end up breaking. And I don't think he has many answers off of his back once Chandler is able to establish himself in top position, just as we saw in the Kevin Lee fight, just as we saw Chandler stay safe in the Gaioti Yamauchi fight. Again, not a lot of people know about Yamauchi. You know about Yamauchi. Oh, that sick. guy has some serious fucking jujitsu. And the way that he was able to stay safe in that fight, majority of it playing out in that full guard, you know, I, I thought that was very impressive. I would advise Chandler to try to pass the guard here and try to get to half guard at least or side control so he's not as is in as much trouble. But I think that first seven and a half minutes is going to be iffy for him if he decides to go for the wrestling early here. That's where I think Charles could potentially catch him with something. At the end of the day, though, I'm going to go Charles uh, or Chandler here. I think he gets that knockout first round. Uh, like I said, I think the um, 
the uh, first round knockout probably is plus 460. That's where I like the most here. Either way, as long as somebody goes to sleep or eats the canvas within 12 and a half minutes, I'm going to be happy. I think it's worth the chalk, to be honest. I think we're going to see high action from the get-go, and I ultimately think that we're going to see Chandler get his hand raised and take home that lightweight strap. How are you feeling about this one? Yes, you made a good point with with Chandler's grappling. It's like super underrated when you've seen him go against the guys like Goiti Yamauchi. I mean, he looks pretty competent there. But uh, little known fact, Michael Chandler is the only guy to ever submit Marcin Held. So it's like, yeah, grappling is something in his back pocket. But for my money's worth, it's like Michael Chandler is one of the most well-rounded fighters I've ever seen in my entire life, right? The guy is a former D1 wrestler of the University of Missouri. He was a starter. Uh, a great, pretty solid collegiate career. His wrestling is top-notch. His explosiveness, his athleticism, his footwork is fantastic. His power, you want to talk about the power this guy packs in his punches? My God. Consider this for a second, right? Daniel Hooker. Daniel Hooker has never been knocked out. He's been TKO'd one time. Edson Barbosa eventually cooked him to the body. He took all of Edson Barbosa's best shots to the chin, walked through them. It was nasty. How was he doing it? But he did it. He proceeded to go three extremely hard rounds with Paul Felder in the rematch, took all of his best shots. He proceeded to go five full rounds with Dustin Poirier, took all of his best shots. Dan Hooker has got a absolute cast iron chin. Michael Chandler walks in there. He put a left hook on him. He completely just folds him up. Ground and pound follows him up, knocks him out. That's impressive. Benson Henderson. Benson Henderson has a absolutely legendary cast iron chin. Only one man has ever knocked him out. Rafael Dos Anjos, back in the day, future UFC champion. You know, caught him with a shot that he clearly did not see coming. It was a, it was a strange little knockout, too. Funny, though. Like, interesting. Anyways, Chandler comes out there in that rematch with Benson Henderson. He puts that right hand on him. He knocks him out. When you look at it, it's like straight right knockout, straight left knockout, left hook knockout. He's got ample power in both of his hands. He's a great wrestler. He's got championship-level experience. He can fight into those later rounds, even though I just think he puts so much into it that he does kind of gas himself out. The one thing is durability. That's like the one thing. You know, Achilles was the perfect Greek warrior. Thing is, his mom had to dip him in the water by his ankle. As a result, ankle super vulnerable. Motherfucker takes arrow in the ankle. And that's where the, yeah, that's where you get the Achilles heel. It's like, where's his kryptonite? It's like, when you mentioned that the longer you see this fight going, you see it playing towards Chandler. That's the only assessment I'm going to disagree with. I almost feel like the longer this fight goes, it's going to actually play out towards Charles Oliveira. Because we've seen in Chandler, the Brent Primus fight, the second time around, he seems to tire the longer the fight goes and starts to rack up damage. The first Benson Henderson, the longer the fight goes, he starts to take damage. The both Will Brooks fights... The, really both Eddie Alvarez fights, but especially the second one, the longer these fights goes, he starts to, you know, accumulate damage. Uh, you can hit him, you can hurt him, you can, I think the leg kick's going to be there, Charles Oliveira's going to be able to hurt the leg, but that's going to be something that takes a while to, to to get going. But what Charles do, we've always talked about quitter mentality, right? How many times has Charles Oliveira got to quit before you realize this guy's got, you know, he's got that mentality? You look at literally all of these losses. Uh, the Donald Cerrone fight, where it's like, Stiff jab, topples over. Cub Swanson, what a delayed reaction that was. He got hit. That was weird. And then that he like so looked weird. off to the side, and then his legs just melted. It was like, holy shit. Um, the Frank Yeager fight, he looked good. Uh, Max Holloway, esophagus tear. What esophagus tear? He's like <laughs> pointing at the ref, kind of trying to call a timeout. Calls an esophagus tear. The, the doctor's like, n- quite literally nothing happened to you. Anthony Pettis fight, he's winning. He missed weight. Or Anthony Pettis, I think, missed weight. Anyways. He's winning the fight. He gives up a guillotine in the third round. The Ricardo Lamas fight, he quits in the second round. The Paul Felder fight, he is all over Paul Felder. Bad. As soon as Paul Felder pops his head free and starts delivering a little TK or a damage with those elbows, 
He wants no part. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's that quitter mentality. But here's the one thing I'll give him a pass. Look at that win streak. Clay Guida in the first. Giagos in the second. Miller in the first. Tamor in the second. Lentz in the second. Gordon in the first. <clears throat> it's the Kevin Lee and Tony Ferguson fight where, he's, where he shows resolve. Because the Kevin Lee fight, it's, it's close. It's actually a really close fight. And in the third, it's Oliveira that's not quitting. It's Lee the one that, that doesn't want to go no more. In the Tony fight, it's like for the three rounds, I wish that was a five-round fight, but it didn't matter. He was going to keep, keep doing that for five rounds. He looked, he looked very good in that fight. Charles is coming into his own. Charles is looking really good right now. Charles is the number one contender. Whether it was Pori or Chandler, you know what the, the fact that remains was? It was going to be against Charles Oliveira. He's earned this spot. He's one of the few guys that would be interesting against Khabib simply just because at least he's got the intangible of a grappling game. Um, but it's like he deserves to be here. It's just I, I kind of agree with you. I think with the first round and a half, Chandler's going to be faster. He's going to be more explosive. And with Chandler being out of um, Sanford MMA with Henry Hoof and all them, they're going to put a, a proper game plan. Whereas you nailed this. Charles stands very straight up. He's always stood straight up, right? It's his Muay Thai style. It's how he gets off those knees to the body. It's how he likes to chop those elbows. He put an absolute clinic on guys like Nick Lentz, but he always stands very upward and he doesn't move his head from side to side. The knockout losses he's had has been because of this, but he does make it work for himself against lower level guys. Now, most people see eight fight winning streak, but like you're seeing eight fight winning streak where it's like six of these guys probably should not have been booked in the fight to begin with the other two guys he had favorable matchups with right but my the last point i'll I'll make here is that clay guida wrestler christos giagos i should say clay guida not a power puncher christos giagos not a power puncher tim miller not a power these are all wrestlers david tamor is a striker all bite He, he is not a power puncher nick lentz wrestler jared gordon was moving up from 45 i don't know why and, and again he's, he's 100% a grappler right kevin lee can strike is a grappler tony ferguson it's the same thing he's well-rounded he's tricky but he's not a power puncher we talked about in his breakdown you know it doesn't really go out there and knock these guys out more so puts volume on these guys so charles been able to roll with the punches lately but Chandler brings that power. He brings that power that's hurt Oliver in the past, and I think that he's going to be all over him. He's going to be dynamic. He's going to beat him to the punch, and he's going to hurt him early. So same reason I was on Michael Chandler over Hooker, and I saw that Chandler by knockout was like 5-1. to one. It was a big plus money play. They're doing the same thing here, is that you can get Chandler straight up, but Chandler by knockout is plus 195. So uh, I want some of that. The, my play will be Chandler, Chandler by knockout. And for the fourth and final time tonight, I'm going to tell you, this is a good live betting opportunity. <laughs> it is. Because yep. similar to how you can you can bet both sides, I can bet Michael Chandler right now for plus money. That's a plus money play. Let's just call it $100 for the sake of easy numbers. I have a $100 on, 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 on Chandler at plus money. After the first round, after the first three or four minutes, if your book allows you to bet mid-fight or mid-round, it's going to be plus money Charles Oliveira. Chandler's going to win the first round. He's faster. He's got the power. It's the longer this thing extends out. So my plan would be I could bet Chandler plus money now and bet Charles Oliveira plus money after the first round. I've got a plus money bet on both sides. I can't lose money. But uh, I'm just going to balls up and just stick with the Chandler. As much as I'd like to see Charles Oliveira. Did you see that thing he races horses like standard bread? Same thing as me. (laughs) Yeah, dude. This is is my spirit animal, Charles eh? Oliveira. I know. This is my guy. This is my guy. Um, but I like, I, I, truthfully, my gut tells me that Chandler finds that shot. So I'm going to have to go with Chandler, Chandler by knockout at plus 195. And uh, again, looking at this one from a live betting standpoint, I think there's a lot of good spots on this card to look at from a live betting span, standpoint. And even last weekend, there was a lot of good spots as well. These fights have been going the distance. They have been banking in rounds. I have been doing pretty good with these over-unders. 
And uh, yeah, hopefully, last week we had Harris by submission. Hopefully this week is Giagos by submission. But That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, re- regardless, as much as it's like iffy and this fight and uh, what am I confident in? What I am confident in is this fight is this card is going to deliver from an entertainment standpoint. Hopefully from a financial standpoint, it does as well. For sure, this should be chaos. At least the, the last two fights, for sure, I'm very much looking forward to it. Caitlin Shkagan and Arujo might bring it to a screeching halt a little bit, but still, uh, the fight before that, Shane Burgos versus Barboza, should be absolutely bonkers as well. All right, let's get into our three best bets, and then we'll uh, lock this thing up. Uh, but first and foremost, I do want to announce the cast that I have for tomorrow night. I got... Three guys. One of them you'll definitely be familiar with. We got my guy, uh, Adam Martin, coming in. He's pretty much been working all over the place. I think his main thing right now is the head right over there at BJPen.com. Shout out to Adam Martin. A very good friend of mine. I've been friends with him close to 10 years now. Uh, so he's going to be hopping on the show. And then we have a couple of newbies here. We got MMA experts. Uh, his name is AJ. I, do, I think he does a couple uh, shows over there on Pub Sports Radio. Solid guy. Knows what he's talking about. Has a great setup. Uh, very much looking forward to seeing what he has to say about the card. And then lastly, we have my guy, Legs the Capper. Uh, you guys know him from uh, the Club and Sub podcast. I did their show uh, last night. Uh, great show. Great guys. Uh, good friends of mine as well, too. And I'm very much looking forward to bringing them to the table here to break down the fights for you guys. So this goes down tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Me, Adam Martin, AJ, and Legs the Capper. We're going to be going over the card one final time. Not to mention, we'll have the weigh-ins in mind this time. So if any funny business happens on the scales, we'll definitely know about it. Hopefully, we have no fights pull out, and uh, we'll be able to break down the fights for you guys one last time. All right, let's get into our three best bets here. Let me just pull this thing up. Uh, Come on. Come on, baby. Let's go. All right, there we go. First and foremost, I got Chandler in round one, plus 460. Got to take a shot on that one. I think his explosive uh, striking style is going to be a little bit too much for uh, Oliveira. I don't think Oliveira is going to see those punches coming. Uh, even if Chandler wants to mix it up to the body and then eventually come up to the head, I think that could absolutely be live for him. But Chandler is going to be a bat, of a bat out of hell in that first round. And I think that Oliveira is going to pay for it. So I got Chandler, round one, plus 460. Kind of surprised it's at that crazy number. Uh, I thought it would be closer to plus 250, plus 200. But I'll take that round one plus 460, baby, because I do think that's the way that he ends up taking the fight. Next up, I have Catelyn Chikagian via decision, minus 105. Probably the first time you guys have ever seen a minus or a favorite, uh, a slight favorite line on my best props. But I very much do like this fight. I think that Chikagian is a very good spot this weekend. As long as Arujo doesn't take a grapple-heavy approach and kind of nullifies Chikagian's stand-up game by just planting her on the ground and kind of just keeping her there. Uh, I, I think that Chukagian just stays on her bicycle, sticks and moves throughout the, the majority of those 15 minutes, gets Viviani Arujo with that air, and then takes home that decision victory. Minus 105, me likey. And then lastly, it was tough. I couldn't find one, but I had to go with Lutz via decision plus 190. Again, very scarce card in terms of having... Uh, ultimate confidence on some of these props but these are the three that i feel best about more so the the first two that i gave you guys but in terms of lots via decision plus 190 not too bad i'm expecting that fight to go to a decision i'm expecting him to have a little bit more versatile of a striking attack than what aguilar is going to bring to the table and as long as both of them stay conscious which i think they will i think lots will at least get the first two rounds here and then uh, pick up that judge's decision at the end of the 15 minutes all right cody you're up 
All right, hell yeah, you know me, I like to start with a little minus 160. Uh, I gotta start that bankroll off right. We're going with Grundy Venata. Fight goes the distance, minus 160. Again, I think Grundy's gonna use that power wrestling. Routinely get this fight to the ground. It would be able to grind him and grapple him. And uh, hopefully, you know, be enough to uh, to get the decision. Venata is capable. He's a durable enough guy. But I just think it's gonna bank some rounds. Well, last couple weeks ago, we talked about Cody Stamen robbed Voshvili. I I guaranteed that fight would go the distance. You have the, you have the power grappler versus the guy that knows how to grapple but it's just going to continuously getting out muscled. It'll go to 15. I got a similar opinion here, only I don't got to get it at... It ended up going 275, which is actually, in my opinion, a good price. When we got a minus 160 here, Grundy Venata, I'm going to take it. Now it's like, okay, now I need an even money play, right? And then we're going to go with... We're going to go with Andrea Lee plus 168. Uh, th this is a spot that I actually liked. I thought about going the Gina Mazzani plus 100. That was the other option, but it was even money. This is plus 168. I think that Lee's just going to be able to mix in the wrestling. And when you look at it by the numbers, right? Here's somebody that she is a kickboxer by trait. She is able to keep these fights standing. She does like to throw two, three, you know, for every one fight that Antonina Shevchenko should throw back. It's that willingness to throw in the wrestling. Now, we do know that she has takedown defense issues, but again, Lauren Murphy's the type of opponent that can expose that. Roxanne Monteferi is the type of opponent that can expose that. Joanne Calderwood is an elite-level opponent, you know, great striking, does mix in the grappling as well. They were all capable of doing that. Antonina, I'm not quite sure. So I think this fight's going the distance, which the bookmaker's on the same page. I need to be on one side of it, and I'm going to go with Lee, plus 168, made a lot of sense. And then, you know, Locke always shows, you know, with these big plus money price tags, makes me look bad. So I need one as well. Chakra Souza 300. And I'm going to agree with uh, DFS by the numbers, Brady on this one as well. It's like, if this becomes, Mooney's can't strike, right? Jacare is the superior striker. That's the advantage for him. Mooney's is wrestling. What wrestling? He's more of a guard puller. Jacare actually can wrestle. We've seen him go out there. It's something he spent a lot of time working on. So you give the wrestling advantage to him as well. Grappling. Have you ever given someone a grappling advantage over Jacare Souza in a fight before? No. no. Cardio. Cardi is cardio is probably better. He literally has this matchup where wherever it should take place. Age is the one thing that it's like, you know, father time is undefeated. It does eventually get everybody. Cerrone figured to have advantages over Morono everywhere last week, but it's like durability and age is certainly in question, but it's like Muniz is not going to bring that kind of pace and pressure. What I do think he'll be able to do is use his jiu-jitsu to stay safe. That's why they learn jiu-jitsu. Your first class, it's self-defense, you know? You call the cops and you're like, there's a home burglar just broke into my house. You're Anthony Smith and they say it's going to take us 20 minutes to get there. Can you survive for 20 minutes? This guy's a third-degree BJJ black belt. You know, I just think that he'll be in enough to stay out of harm's way. If he had some Gregor Gillespie, you know, he just knocked out a, a BJJ world champion uh, third degree last week. But it's like that smothering, break you down, grind you, cause you to quit, you know, all over you, pace, 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 pressure, 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 grind, grind, grind. That breaks you. But Muniz is not going to do that to Jacare. Jacare is not going to do that to Muniz. I think it's going to be a slower paced grappling match, one that Jacare wins over the course of 15. It's three to one. That seemed too, too good to be true to me. But we'll know on come Sunday morning if Jacare is all the way done or if he had one left. Especially if he goes out there and gets the finish, <clears throat> that would definitely suck as well. But I yeah. do like that plus three hundred price tag. Not the round three props you're looking from for me at least. Plus four sixty, you know, on the lighter end compared to the props I normally give up. But again, very very tough card. I'm very much looking forward to it and seeing how it plays out in terms of a like unofficial track or untracked bets and unofficial bets from my side. Gonna be very late. I don't want to have much action on this on this card. I just want to sit back, smoke a J, and just fucking chill out and watch these fights, man. I, I don't want to have too much financially invested. 
investor. Obviously, it's nice when you're able to hit PRPs and you're able to hit these crazy parlays, but I think it's going to be very scarce in terms of winnings for this weekend uh, in terms of if people are trying to parlay spots together. Try to find those spots that you're confident in. Fire on those. Otherwise, just sit back. There's much better spots next weekend. I can't wait to get into the uh, the card uh, for next weekend with you, Cody, next week uh, when we got Garbrandt and Font fighting in the main event. A ton of other great spots, not to mention the return of motherfucking Demir Ismagulov. That's my uh, dark horse of the division right there, so I can't wait to see him return to the cage. But yeah, appreciate everybody checking out the stream. As always, Cody, I'll give you the platform on the back end here, and then I'll wrap things up on the on the end. Yeah, at CJ Saftig on Twitter, as always, uh, working to put some additional content and some shows together in the near future, so bear with me. If you want to see more, yeah, hit hit me up on Twitter and just let me know kind of what you'd like to see or if it's something that you'd support. And yeah, definitely always trying to grow the brand and, and keep things going the right direction. And yeah, I mean, I just got to say I love all the support and everyone that takes the time to come out here on Thursday, check it out. And of course, on Friday, if you want any of the post weigh-in thoughts, hit lock, kick up the gang. And uh, yeah, eventually, see, he's getting all these like cool different guys together, different guys you might not have heard of, different cabbers, different people from the community. Eventually, it's all going to lead into a blood sport style tournament <laughs> where we need a cap off. You you tell me who the 28 back best guys in the world are and we'll have a cap off but until then tune into the show support his stuff and yeah always good times on the way I think once I get through at least one go through of the pool of guys that I have, I'm going to put out a poll out there and see what people like the most. I know you're going to be probably number one because people fucking love you and they want you on every week. Is there not a week that goes by that people mentioned in the chat? Where the fuck is Cody Saftik? I'm like, hey. It's not in my control. If I could have him on every week, I would love to have him on every week. But we'll eventually work something out that we can hopefully do that Ultimate Wayne show uh, as a permanent thing. But for now, you guys should be more than happy with this Propping You Up show because we give you guys two hours for free every fucking week uh, that you guys can depend on every Thursday evening. So we appreciate you guys checking out. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe. And then I'll see you guys tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Once again, me, from, uh, me Adam Martin. Uh, AJ from MMA Experts and then Legs the Capper from Club and Sub Podcast. Hope you guys join us tomorrow night. Good luck on your bets. Good luck on your props. Good luck on your DraftKings as Cody's repping DraftKings over there. And hopefully you guys are able to win some money. Enjoy the fights most. And uh, obviously, gamble responsibly, please.